just a few minutes before we went live with this episode of DLC, uh, we got the bad news that uh, our good friend Marcus Beer, who's been on the show before, uh, had suffered a heart attack on January 28th and is in a medically induced coma. He is on the road to recovery, but he can use your help. Uh, his wife, Shauna, has set up a Give Forward page. I'm going to put a link in the show notes of this episode. Uh, you can also find a link to that on my Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash Jeff Canada. Um, we're thinking about Marcus. He's such a great guy. I know many of you know him as the annoyed gamer and uh, his, his kind of bristly personality uh, that's front facing. And that is kind of the character that he plays when he's talking about video games, but in person and in real life, he's one of the nicest, warmest human beings. I know always quick with a hug and a, a smile. Um, we're thinking about Marcus and his wife, Shauna and their uh, recently adopted child. Um, and we hope that you can help them out in this time of need. is bumping and it is time for some game talk wherever you are whenever you are and however you happen to be listening we're so glad you've chosen to tune in to dlc especially if you are one of our geeks and sneaks using this show to power you through a workout or a run we are going to be with you in your ear holes for 90 plus minutes actually it's going to be a beefy one this week we got bonus content coming at you we got lots of stuff to discuss DLC is your downloadable commentary for the week, delivered the way we love it to be, completely free. And that's thanks to our sponsors this week, Speedtest, HelloFresh, Squarespace, Squarespace, and Fireside. They made that possible, bringing the show to you. DLC, of course, the show, all about games in their many forms. Games played on desktops, laptops, and consoles, and also games that involve dice, luck, and cardboard. I'm your host, Jeff Kanata, and I'm joined, as always, by my friend, slash co-host, slash nemesis. The guy who knows that when the world goes topsy-turvy, it can feel good just to spend some time talking about video games. Mr. Christian Spicer. Hello, Christian. Hello, Jeff. Hello, uh, everyone. Also, uh, it's weird to say at this time because there's other bigger things going on, but my next stand-up album has an official release date. It's called We're All Gonna Die. It comes out Monday, February 6th. Too soon, Christian. Too soon. I, it was named before. It's an it's old... It's a little yeah. on the nose now. It's, too, it's, it's a little too relevant. Uh, it comes out the twenty February 6th, Monday, on iTunes, Amazon MP3, and Google Music Store. And it's available to pre-order right now on iTunes and Amazon MP3. And it's already feature complete. Like, there's not going to be a day one patch or, like, there's no pre-order bonuses other than helping me. Uh, get the album some exposure. So, uh, but that is out. I will talk about it a few more times uh, until it comes out. But I wanted to let people know because I'm excited. Yeah. Excited to hear it. Uh, and excited for today's episode. We got so much to talk about. I went to PAX East, played a bunch of games. There's some previews of new games. We've got new game announcements. And the coolest thing is we have an awesome guest to do it with. Uh, you know that DLC is always your downloadable Kanata and your downloadable Christian. But I'm excited because we have a brand new DLC this week. DLC this week stands for Digest of Linking Cables. 
Because from Wired Magazine, we have games editor and the author of Power Up, How Japanese Video Games Gave the World an Extra Life. We are so excited to welcome Chris Kohler here to the show for the first time. Welcome, Chris. Hello, Jeff. Hello, Christian. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, we're, we're thrilled. This is going to be a real fun one. We got tons of stuff to get through. We got bonus content coming at the end of the show. Uh, Kelly Wallach from, uh, the Independent Games Festival was on last year talking about GDC, giving us a preview for GDC. She came back this year and we'll have uh, a talk with her at the end of the show. I also have a, um, a quick interview that I did at PAX with uh, game designer Jason Roberts. So stay tuned for that, but let's get to the the start of the show the way we always do with Story of the Week. Story of the Week, it's the Story of the Week. Story of the Week, it's the Story of the Week. Story of the Week is the part of the show where we make our case for the most important stories that happened in the world of games this week. And you can always submit stories for our consideration by using our hashtag on Twitter, that's DLCSOTW, or by visiting our subreddit, which is 5x5dlc.reddit.com. Uh, this week is just jam-packed with new game announcements. <laughs> it's really exciting. Uh, Chris, you are our guest, so you get first pick of stories. What would you consider to be your story of the week? Um, I, you know, I would say, uh, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna totally uh, throw you a curveball. Okay, yes. I'm gonna say it is the the teasing of Skate Four. Mm-hmm. Uh, from from Electronic Arts. Um, you you guys want to you guys want to talk about that? Yeah. So uh, you know, I'll skate- tell you what I think. Sure. Uh, so so this is from a tweet that uh, came from EA Community Manager Daniel Lingen or Lingen, um, and it simply said hashtag Skate Four. So we don't have much more information than that. Of course, the skate franchise is is one that is very popular and uh, kind of brought a new kind of uh, simulation to skateboarding games. It was very different than the, the Tony Hawk franchise or the other sort of over-the-top skating tr- franchises. And people have been uh, crying for uh, a new entrant into that into that franchise for a while now and i think a lot of people are heartened by this you know it's the official community manager of ea it's got to be kind of a tacit announcement of this game coming being worked on right is that your take chris well ori's a loose cannon and he and he can't (laughs) be controlled and uh and 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 uh and and you know what's his name patrick soderland is gonna take his have his badge for this um or or yes, EA is making Skate Four. Um, and the the thing that uh, is is so interesting to me about this is this is an example. I think I kind of think that PewDiePie willed this game into existence because <laughs> Activision had you know by and large kind of stopped making Tony Hawk games. The the skateboard game genre is basically done. Um, but PewDiePie was so into skate three um and and did so many streams of the older game skate three um that uh you know he actually he put the game back onto the sales charts his people his his fans his millions upon millions of fans start buying this game and playing this game um and i don't think it's a stretch at all to say that like if skate four happens it it would not have happened but for the fact that pewdiepie loved skate three so much that's pretty cool. I mean, I, PewDiePie using his powers for good. I like seeing that. Um, Christian, I know you were a huge fan of the Skate franchise. Uh, what would you want to see out of a Skate 4? 
I mean, pretty much just, I, I'd love it to just copy as much of Tony Hawk 5 as possible. I mean, that game was, <laughs> um, I mean, it, honestly, I, I, I want them to, I want them to handle the franchise with care, but also realize that in this day and age, it's not going to be a sales blockbuster for them. So I, I, I feel like the best chance for the success of this franchise to continue forward is to maybe release a 30 or $40 game. Uh, maybe it's downloadable only or something like that. And maybe it's not as big as Skate 3. Maybe it's just one open sandbox kind of play area, like just a school or whatever it is. But the mechanics are there. The fun is there because real skating, I can, you know, you can sit on a curb all day, right? Like you can have fun at a place with three steps for a week. So, and I think the skate franchise has captured that authentic feel of skating so well. So I'd love to see that. And then even more share sharing of like clips and runs and tricks and stuff like that, because the original skates did such a great job of people doing that when it was so hard to record and share clips that now in 2017, hopefully they can, they can jump on that even, even more. To your point, Chris, I think it's a, it's kind of a cool thing that We've gotten to the point where, you know, the audience for games really is heard. You know, these these kinds of things yeah. are happening more and more. You're seeing all these games that people have been clamoring for for a long time. And the the publishers are going, okay, let's give the people what they want. And it's, you know, worked to varying success. But I, I hope this one is is one of the positive ones. I think it's easier today to quantify what people want because, I mean, it, you know, even even 10 years ago, you were kind of sitting, if you're working at a video game publisher, and maybe you had the sense that people wanted a certain game, but you didn't really know that. I mean, what were you going to get that from? Like comment cards they sent into the mail or, you know, sort of random emails that showed up in your in your inbox. But today, I mean, you can go and you can make a case that a game should get funded and because you can say, look, we got X you know, XD thousand uh, tweets and you can, you can actually show all of the quantification of the, the, the fan support. And you, you know who the, you know, it's, it's, you know that it's not just one guy writing a thousand letters. You can tell that it's unique individual people, um, you know, writing these things. You can show where the influencers um, are, are clamoring for these things as well. And you can really make that case. Right. I think that's a great point. But well, I mean, being... snakes on a plane and Scott Pilgrim say hi, right? Like we're still <laughs> in a world where digital influence or hardcore influencer influence doesn't necessarily translate into something that a, a huge media company would call a yeah, success. Yeah, and, and snakes on a plane was absolutely it showing that like there was it, it, the amplification of a, of a ultimately small group of people who were very influential on the internet, right? The people who read... Um, uh, you know the Topedo Co. comics and things like that. Like, like it, 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 it seemed to be if you just looked at the internet, Snakes on a Plane was a viral sensation. But at that time, the internet was not a reflection of what the mainstream public was actually paying attention to or, or cared about. Hmm. Are we well, talking means- about games and pop culture? What? I'm- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, I think, I think today you can. I think today you can say that more people are participating in the online discussions. Um, with snakes on a plane, I mean, it was pretty much just people who sat around on the internet all day and shared memes, which in two thousand and five, two thousand and six, whenever that was, yeah. was was just not as representative of of um, mainstream tastes. Now everybody just sits on the internet and shares memes. So yeah. that's Depressive. just what everyone does. Anyway, well, I have high hopes for Skate 4. I mean, I was never a huge fan of that franchise, but it's it's cool that it, it at least some glimmer of hope for people that are excited for it. So uh, I much prefer my extreme sports extreme. So 
that's just me. I want I want my SSXs of the world. Well, the franchise, the EA franchise, you really want them to bring back. I know you're a huge fan of it. Burnout Jesse, is Mirror's Edge. I know you've been clamoring <laughs> for it. <laughs> well, Mirror's Edge, yeah. No, Burnout is the one I want back. Please, yeah. Yeah. Burnout, please. Um, Christian, how about you? What is your story of the week? I mean, come on, it's Marvel, baby, right? Like it's gotta be the the floodgates, baby, Marvel. The flood, the flood, floodgates are down. Uh, we have Marvel versus Capcom Infinite, whatever you know, is back, and now there's a huge multi-year, multi-game deal announced between Marvel and Square Enix, which uh, the teaser listed Idos Montreal and Crystal Dynamics as teams working on the game and or games, and I would say that those teams have released. Stellar games over the past couple of years. Tomb Raiders, the Deus Exes. Yeah, yeah. These, are, these are good games. So I am I am super excited. It's one of my my favorite, you know, properties by one of the my favorite of recent memory developers coming together to make something awesome. The teaser left me a little uh cautiously optimistic. It's uh, very teasery. It it this seems like this game is far away. What they said in the release 2018, which is like the first game is 2018. I don't know if that's the mobile tie-in, if that's the Marvel <laughs> Avengers Go or something, uh, which I'd still play the crap out of. But what made me a little reserved for the teaser is it seemed like it was trying to reassemble the Avengers. It looked like they had kind of been, you know, defeated or something. And I'm just not ready. I'm not looking forward to playing a game that's like... I'm secret agent Susan Smith, and I'm here to find out what happened to the Avengers. I'm just like, I don't care, Susan. I don't care. I want to play as the Avengers. Right, right. That's interesting. I didn't I didn't get that, but maybe that – I think not playing as the Avengers is a mistake. <laughs> but do you remember when we talked about that, um, that crazy um, uh, leaked footage of the Avengers game? I can't remember the studio that was working on it, but it got canceled. It was like a – It was a first-person shooter. Yeah. Or first-person perspective, I should say. Not a lot of shooting. Yeah, it looked cool. Right. It looked so great. I mean, I hope I hope it has some DNA from that in it because, you know, like the big Hulk hand smashing stuff and, you know, first person Captain America throwing a shield. All that stuff looked really, really fun. Uh, Chris, you excited about this? I am. Yeah. I mean, it's it's it when you hear about it, it makes a lot of sense because it's precisely what Disney did with um, Star Wars, which is, uh, you know, once Disney got out of game development, it was like, OK, we're going to go to Electronic Arts. And, okay, Electronic Arts, you now have the mandate. You have the Star Wars license. You are going to be the exclusive provider of Star Wars games. Um, that it would make sense that they would do the exact same thing with some developer or another. And, yeah, I mean, Square Enix is definitely a uh, – uh, it, 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 it kind of seems like a dark horse candidate. Um, but there must have just been a really good, you know, match between Square Enix, you know, wanting to get into – I mean, to, to get into a licensed game business like that, it, it can be um, – it can be very, you know, more stabilizing for a publisher to know that they're going to be putting out games that have these really established franchises behind them. Um, and you're right to take a license that is strong and a developer that is strong. Um, you would hope that 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 would start delivering on really good things. So it really could. It, it really could. We could see some, you know, we don't want, you know, crappy licensed games uh, churned out, you know, day and date with movies anymore. People want things that are in that franchise. Um, and to kind of like, you know, Batman Arkham Asylum, the whole the whole thing would be right. um, would be would be exceptional for Marvel if they can if they can pull it off. I find it very funny as a, uh, you know, an old school Squaresoft, you know, JRPG fan that uh, 99 percent of the discussion these days when we talk about Square Enix. I mean, we're literally just talking about IDOS. Right. Yeah, no, that's absolutely it's very, true. It's very strange. Yeah, I mean, I, it's the, I mean, yeah, it's so associated in my mind with JRPGs, but that's like barely what they do anymore. 
right? Yeah, it's it's westernized to such a strong degree. It's it's very surprising. Yeah. And um, what's going to be really interesting is because you know this is going to happen. What is going to be the first like what the first time they announce that like a big Western developer, you know, one of their internal studios is making a Final Fantasy. Like it won't be Final yeah. Fantasy 16, but you know, you know, they've got to be dying to like try that at some point. I'm going to be really interested to see when that inevitably happens. That would be fascinating. That would be yeah. fascinating to see because the games have have kind of. You know, it's certainly 15 has Western influences all over it. Um, it'd be interesting to yeah. see if they ever let that fall directly into the hands of a Western developer. Yep. Um, you know, sort of sister news with this is, is that, um, I guess leaked information or, or strong sources from, from a few places have said that IDOS Montreal, which is the studio that brought us uh, the Deus Ex games, uh, Mankind Divided most recently, um, is working on the next Tomb Raider. We know that was leaked, uh, Shadow of the Tomb Raider, which is pretty exciting as somebody who's a big fan of those first two uh, rebooted Tomb Raider games. But they also will be working on a Guardians of the Galaxy game. Uh, that's at least the strongly suspected rumor um, as part of this deal. So Avengers is game one and Guardians of the Galaxy is game two. That's pretty exciting stuff from a for a Marvel zombie from way back like myself. Um I think it's, it sounds sounds awesome. And having these these guys, I mean the the other edge of this double edged sword is that it sounds like we aren't going to get any more Deus Ex games for quite a while. But I wasn't a huge fan of Mankind Divided, and I I'm much more excited to see these guys take a swing at Guardians of the Galaxy and see what they can do with it. Also, vaguely sort of related to this is the fact, um, and and this is a, I mean, maybe a minor news story for some, but I was very happy to see that um, uh, Warner Brothers um, acquired Avalanche Software, uh, who were the makers of Disney Infinity, um, mm-hmm. and they acquired that studio from Disney. Um, they they reopened it, and um, you know the the staff is is still there, and they're going to do a, a Cars three game basically for hmm. for Disney, um, which is very which is very nice to know because they were they were a very good developer, and it was very sad that they it seemed like they were all going to get you know disbanded. Yeah, no, that is good and news. Making Disney games again, yeah. And as <laughs> as you mentioned, it's it's really an interesting shift for Disney, who over the last you know five to ten years had been building up Disney and Disney uh, Digital Studios to to like be their in house. Video yep. game studio, and then have just completely changed track and decided that they're going to disband all of that and just license out to stronger developers. Well, I mean, stronger might not be the right word, but you know, established developers. Um, developers I think it's a really with interesting... money that's not theirs that are willing to pay for these licenses, right? Like, yeah. And why take the risk? Why why not just sit back and let the license money flow in? Yeah. You know, and then it, why 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 worry that your own in house development studio is going to lose money or get shut down? Why not just you know license it out to somebody else? And if they shut down, great, just give the license to somebody else after that. Yeah, but you know, even kind of as you indicated in the past, that would be a a worrisome thing of like, oh, they're just going to funnel out these these crap um, you know right, IP right. games. And it seems like they're really taking much more care in selecting which developers get which properties, and that's that's heartening. Yep. Uh, my story of the week is yet another uh, just recently announced upcoming game. It's a week for that, uh, and this one is intriguing to me on a number of levels. It evidently we're getting an Apocalypse Now video game. Um, just you know, perfect synergy with the release of uh, 1979's Apocalypse Now. Um, <laughs> 
And it has Francis Ford Coppola's blessing. He is uh, helping to kind of uh, lend his zoetrope films uh, to this effort. And uh, they're launching a Kickstarter to fund uh, a three-year development cycle. Normally, this would give me some worry because uh, I would assume that Apocalypse Now! The Video Game is like a big shooter where you kill everybody and it's just like, Oh, that just sounds awful. It's you're going to be Rambo in the apocalypse now universe somehow. But it sounds like these guys are really trying to approach it from a different perspective and, and really kind of stay true to the heart of darkness, the original novel upon which the movie is based and the movie itself in that it's much more about mood. It's much more about uh, relationships. It's not going to be evidently a, uh, a shooty shoot. Um, it says, uh, a lot of games are about the acquisition of stuff. Apocalypse Now is about the acquisition of relationships. I thought that was an intriguing quote. Press X to pick up relationship. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And evidently the game starts with this sort of psychedelic sequence, just like the movie does in the hotel room um, with uh, uh, Captain Benjamin Williard, uh, you know, going tripping out. And they're going to try to, you know, create that same kind of artful approach there they referenced gone home as a game that gave them uh encouragement that something like this could work what do you what do you think about this chris i'm excited i mean i'm excited that um that things like gone home are 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 catching on and attracting the eyes of i mean people you know essentially groups that are outside of um this this little oligopoly of video game publishers um who are now trying to get in and saying okay yeah there's there is something here you know maybe there is a market here um for games that that tell stories in this way that aren't just sort of the rote first person shooter again and again and again and to see it with apocalypse now and it's one it's just great to hear that like they're they're looking at gone home as a model for an apocalypse now video game with francis ford coppola's involvement like that's you know as a dad with limited time on my hands like these are the sort of games that i want to play these days and i want to see things that are like you know pushing video games in different directions or in some cases i mean you know bringing them back uh to to where they were in the days of computer games when we look at like the games you know that infocom was putting out when you look at when you look at the adventure games that were really popular with adults um on uh pc you know back in the in the 80s um that kind of died um you know it died the moment that like you know sierra made king's quest 8 into a sword swinging action game right um I mean, you know, the fact that we're looking back at that and saying, oh, maybe we were really on to something here um, and we should try to make modern day video games that have those sort of design sensibilities. It's, it's really exciting. And I love also, I mean, Annapurna, right? The, uh, the film production company mm-hmm. got into making video games and they're going to do What Remains of Edith Finch, that uh, the follow up from the unfinished Swan guys. So yeah. I, I'm, I'm ex- I hope it works. I hope it works out and it's not seen five years from now as... Remember when all these film production companies decided to get into video games and blew all these money on, blew all this money on like you know these sort of artsy fartsy games and it all went down the toilet? No, I really, I really hope it catches on and works because that's that's going to be so exciting for me. Yeah, I agree. And the the team that they have assembled, at least according to the Kickstarter, is is pretty impressive. Uh, lead writer for Gears of War, Battlefield, and Far Cry, executive producer and director on Fallout New Vegas and The Witcher, um, producer on Wasteland Two and Torment: Times of Numenera. Um, this is you know a pretty powerful team here, and and the idea that these guys are going to make something that's a little more edgy, a little more daring, and possibly pushing the envelope of of you know what we expect from video games I, i'm i'm excited as well 
Christian, what do you think? The, the Kickstarter side of it has me maybe more concerned than I should be. Um, everything they're saying about the game sounds great, but it's a three-year dev cycle. Uh, I, I guess I hope they get their funding and they're able to make the game they want to make. For me personally, I will wait until there's a game to, <laughs> to see or talk about. Like I think they're saying all the right things and they've lining up team that looks like it can accomplish all the right things, but I'm still not a, a huge fan or super trustworthy of this Kickstarter approach for this property you used to love. Help us make it without any real screenshots, gameplay, or information. Also, come on! Uh, it's kind of, so I'm still kind of on that side of the fence with this. Yeah. Um, it's, it, I guess we have to be cautious now with, uh, with Kickstarter stuff. Uh, although, you know, I was pretty excited to see pillars of eternity Two come on, on Kickstarter and just blow past its goal in 24 hours. That was pretty cool. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess we have to be, we have to be cautiously optimistic, but yeah, I, I like the, what they're saying now, but yeah, talk to me in three years, I guess is, uh, is our coda. Pillars of Eternity 2 is on Fig, by the way. Oh, um, you're, you're right, yes. Somebody's going to smack you down for that. Might Thank you. Thank you for the correction. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Fig. No problem. <laughs> uh, all right, guys, let's, uh, let's move on because we've got so much other stuff to talk about. I do have to thank our first sponsor, which is Speedtest. Um, Speedtest is uh, a useful tool. It is something that you can actually use right now to find out how fast your internet connection is, and it's completely free. I'm not trying to sell you anything. This is just letting you know that Speedtest now has a desktop app that makes it much easier for you to find out how fast your ping is. And if you know, and how fast your connection is. And if you, you know, you're playing multiplayer online games, that's useful information. It's information that you can actually apply to getting better and, uh, and, you know, competing harder in online games. Uh, this is a desktop app that's available for both Mac and PC. Uh, it's, it's really super simple. You just download it. It's on, on your desktop. It's got a big giant button that says, check my speed. You click it. It runs in just a few seconds and you can use that information. It's, it's really the industry standard for testing your internet connection speed. And, uh, they have, you know, they have all kinds of established ways to do it now inside the browser, uh, with a, uh, uh, iPhone and um, Android app. Uh, there's over 9 billion tests they've conducted and counting. This is a useful thing. So go check it out, download, and and really understand your speed, understand what you can do to improve your connection. I use it. I moved into a new house just recently, and the first thing I wanted to find out is, hey, is that ISP that I'm giving my money to actually giving me the, the speeds that they advertised? It's very important to know that. You know, you're, you're spending a lot of money on your ISP every month. Make sure that they're coming through with the, with the speed that they advertised that they wanted to give you. So go to speedtest.net slash DLC and download the app. Find out your speed. Uh, it's completely free. Like I said, they're not asking for anything from you. Just go to speedtest.net slash DLC and uh, get better, get faster. Know your speed. Oh man, my playlist is chock full of awesome goodness. Uh, I, I can't wait to, to tell you guys about uh, my time uh, with Hero uh, Horizon Zero Dawn that I got uh, hands on with four hours of today or today this week. Uh, but let's start with Chris. Uh, let's start also talking about Nintendo Switch because you were also oh. at the uh, the the event that they had in New York where they showed off everything. You got some hands on with a bunch of the games. 
What was your impression coming away from from your hands-on with Switch? (laughs) How much time do you have? Um, (laughs) So, I mean, the first thing that I think is really important about the Switch uh, is that the the, I think I think one of the major problems with Wii U is that it was very confusing. It wasn't really cool or interesting. um, The hardware itself. Um, I think that Nintendo thought like, oh, you know, we put a we put a screen in the controller, and everybody's going to think that's really neat, and uh, really nobody did. Um, The Switch. I feel like that is the sort of thing where if you go over to somebody's house and they have the Switch, you're just going to want to start messing with it. Like, you're going to, oh, 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 you can you can take it out and then the, the, the screen goes from the TV to the tablet and you put it back in, it pops back on the TV and you can, you can, you can put the, you can, what is it like to, what is it like to take the, the Joy-Cons off and then put them back on? How does that feel? You know, how do you play it? Do you put the kick, you know, you put the kickstand up and put it on the table and whatever. You, you can, because you can, hey, switch between, you know, these basically three different distinct uh, gameplay modes. I think that it is just a really neat piece of hardware that people are going to want to start messing with as soon as they can kind of get their hands on one just to play around with it. And, and the fact that it's just fun to play with the hardware and the settings is a, is a big win for Nintendo because ultimately you have to get people excited about owning the hardware itself exclusive of what games are on it. If you're going to get them to pony up for the hardware, which is something we definitely did. The Wii U did not, but the Switch does. And so it was fun to, like, it's just fun to pop those controllers in and out. And that's really important. Um, as far as games, I think that, and this is something that I said in one of my last pieces for, for Wired, is that um, I really perceive Nintendo as um, going back to core Nintendo fans and fans of cartoony games or fans of Japanese games and fans of RPGs. Um and the sort of core nerd base um, that Nintendo was actually... I mean, in, Nintendo has always been interested in that base, but it's been like a secondary or a tertiary concern for them at their last couple of console launches. The Wii really went after soccer moms and lapsed gamers um, at the expense of Nintendo's core. The Wii U, bizarrely, went after uh, the Call of Duty game. I mean, we, we remember these the Wii U launch where it was like, we got Mass Effect, we got Call of Duty, we got Ninja Gaiden, Extra Blood Edition, we got all this stuff that's for that's for the hardcore gamer because they were literally trying to get back the, the PlayStation 3, Xbox 360 gamer onto Nintendo, which didn't happen. Um, and then they had Wii Fit U, and after all of that, they had like a couple of games for like the core Nintendo, you know, Japanese game-loving, Nintendo Mario-loving audience. Um and but but that was later on in the Wii U's life. Um and so with the Switch, they seem to be going, you know, guns blazing after the sort of um the 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 core into, like the essentially the GameCube audience. Like if you mm. that's what the Switch launch lineup that they kind of they featured at that um event really feels like to me. And they and then even with Mario Odyssey, they're like Nintendo specifically said Miyamoto was just like this Mario Odyssey is like the follow-up to Mario Sunshine. It is the follow-up to Mario 64. It is, it is not for the casuals. It is for the core. It's, like, difficult. It's, it's getting back to, like, that sandbox Mario-style game that, that we walked away from with, you know, from the GameCube to the Wii. And so that's kind of my overall impression of the whole thing is that that's the audience they're going after. And Do you I think, think it's, it's a good thing or I a bad thing? I think it's smart because the casuals are not into buying gaming consoles anymore. They're buying, they're playing games on their phones. Like you're not going to get your mom to buy a Nintendo console anymore. That's that, that, that was a brief window of opportunity. And I think it's over. 
Um, I've I've been trying to get my mom to buy it for me, but she she's like, you're a full grown adult with a child. Oh, right, right, right. I mean, for herself. <laughs> I mean, for herself. Because my mom was just like, I get me a Wii, get me Wii Fit, get me yeah. Wii Play. I want all that stuff. But now, and my mom and dad are, I mean, they play. Sometimes you know they play more video games than I do because I went home for for the holidays and they're just playing Candy Crush and Scrabble and all kinds right. of things, but they're on their phones. They have no need for a console. Um, Isn't that such a yeah. weird phenomenon that we all lived through when every all the adults, all the uh, parents of everybody wanted Wii and Wii Fit for like 15 yeah. minutes? It's and so before strange. the iPhone came out, like Nintendo correctly identified that there was a market for games for other people. Um, and then, you know, the iPhone out Nintendoed Nintendo. But it was yeah. it was really fascinating. It was a really interesting time for sure. Um, but the hardcore gamers, they're not coming back. They're very they're, they're extremely satisfied with the PlayStation 4 and Xbox One. They're very, very satisfied with that. They're not going to they're not going to migrate consoles. Um, and so but what Nintendo can go after is they can sort of make a thing for all the rest of the little market segments that that aren't necessarily as as served by PS4. So, I mean, is it is it going to be a success? I have no idea. Is it their best play in a world where you know a lot of other market segments are already satisfied by previously existing stuff yeah it's probably their best move that's really interesting i that's a really great take on it um what was your experience in actually playing the the games and feeling the controller in your hand and all that stuff did you did you come away with a positive impression yeah, I mean, I think I think playing I think playing Zelda on the Switch is going to make a whole lot of sense because it is comfortable to just you know either hold the Joy Cons that are you know inserted into the grip or in this case really just doing it with the the Pro controller um, you know on the TV it looks great um, and then I played some on the handheld and while it is a little bit like like Zelda was designed for the Wii U it was designed for the big screen when you put it on the tablet screen there there's a lot of little minute details that you might miss when it's when it's on the portable screen but I mean, for a game that's that big, I can really see it being a huge draw to just take it around with you wherever you go. And it feels good. Um, you know, it's not it's not especially heavy. Um, and I, re- I mean, I just really love the fact that, look, if I'm sitting at a table, I don't have to hold the handheld in my hands. I can just rest it on a table. Um, I think that that is going to be – I think that's going to be big too because, honestly, I mean, a lot of the portable gaming that I'm doing, I'm not like, you know – standing up on the bus holding my 3ds I'm either in an airplane seat in which uh, i can just rest it on the tray or i'm at somebody else's house or you know my wife's using the tv and i want to and i want to keep playing zelda and i want to transfer that onto the portable screen in which case i'll just put it on the coffee table i think that also i mean honestly like there you know i felt that the wiimotes um the the sort of the two-handed controller aspect of the wiimote and nunchuck was just one of the most comfortable ways i've ever played a lengthy game like a legend of zelda and the fact that you can do that um on the switch by you know one piece of the controller in each hand now yeah. you don't even have any wires anymore i mean You're that's kind of holding really it at your sides, right yeah, kind of, you can yeah. hold them right. You can, you know, sling one arm over the back of the couch. I mean, however you'd normally <laughs> sit, and you can play the game that way. And that was one of the things I really enjoyed doing with Wii remotes and was kind of sad that uh that you that basically Nintendo kind of abandoned that control scheme for gamepad only games because then it went from like Wii is the most comfortable video game system to play a lengthy game versus Wii U, which is like the least comfortable because now you're holding a gigantic tablet in your hands and there's no there's no option to do otherwise. Right. 
Yeah, well, uh, Nintendo was it was in full force at uh, PAX East. Um, they were kind of uh, tucked away behind uh, in a weird kind of niche area, but they south, had, you mean. did I say East? Yeah, South. East, yeah. Excuse me. Um, yeah, in San Antonio, I was I was in San Antonio over the weekend for PAX South, and. By far the longest line of anything was to get your hands on with the Switch. Uh, I think they said the Zelda line was six hours. Um, and, uh, you know, I was a little skeptical, uh, as I said on this show numerous times, uh, when I saw ARMS. But my goodness, seeing a crowd of people uh, playing ARMS and cheering for each other. I mean, it's a unique use case, right? Because you're probably never going to be in that situation except for someplace like a PAX. But... Everybody was having a blast watching people play play arms with you know and 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 be physical and try to beat each other and I don't know I think you know Nintendo really has has a a great natural sense for fun you know for just kind of basic fun and uh, maybe uh, I don't know did you try arms I did yeah arms was a lot of fun um and and the fact that they the fact you don't have to do motion control like you don't literally have to play through the entire game by literally physically punching with your hands is good because I think that we're, I think that works very well in a demo situation but maybe not if you're going to be doing extended play at home um, but with the fact that the the joy cons do have like you know more sensitive um, motion controls like you know maybe people will actually find that they want to play it more with the um, with the with the motion control just because you can kind of like put English on your punches as you're as you're sending your fists across the across right. the arena, but it's really and it's not. It's like they could have made arms like with with you know going back to my original point. They could have made arms with Wii Sports characters. They could have made arms with Mies. You know what I mean? Or but Punch they, Out. <laughs> or that yeah, they could have done Punch Out. Um and but arms instead is this very you know it kind of has a splatoony anime style influence it really seems like they're trying to you know generate a new ip here that has like characters that are going to become popular that are going to inspire fan art like they're they're really they're they're moving even further in that direction with uh with arms for sure it's it's going to be interesting to see how all those games sell uh and you know i'm sure zelda's going to crush but but how how many other of the launch titles and sort of around launch titles are going to are going to yeah. still do well the fact that we the fact that that zelda is still coming out on wii u and the fact that zelda wii u is is going to be essentially identical to the to the switch version um you know a little couple little things here and there maybe but like you know that is going to stop a lot of wii u owners from from jumping in too early with the switch because they will just be like well look i'll you know i'll just play zelda on my wii u and make that a 60 dollar investment um and then I'll wait to see what comes out later on the Switch. Um, and that could be where Nintendo runs into trouble if they're not able this year to get out of the software that they said they were going to on that on that time frame. See, I think that that means that GameSpot, or excuse me, GameStop is going to crush. <laughs> because they're. I think that what they're going to do is they're going to, uh, you know... I'm already seeing a lot of people trading in their Wii U's for Switches and using that money to sort of justify their purchase. And then there's all these other people who never got a Wii U that can walk into GameStop and pay a much lower price for a for a Wii U and get Zelda that way. So I think that ultimately it's them that's going to be the laughing last. We'll see. Mm-hmm. Uh, Christian, you have some awesome games on your playlist as well. I know that uh, Chris has more, but we'll... We got a lot to get through here. Christian, tell me a little bit about Injustice 2. You were in the beta? 
Yeah, so um, I, I was provided a code um, to the online beta, <clears throat> and um, I, I played. I, I've played. I don't know how much I've played. A couple of sittings of playing. I played for about an hour last night, and I streamed it. It's archived now on my YouTube as well, which is just Christian Spicer seven one three. If you want to see a guy get uh, their butt kicked a whole bunch. And then win a, an occasional round. I won one full match, and oh man, that was like Christmas morning. Uh, <laughs> is that because the people in the beta are, are, are the hardcore fans that are really excited and awesome at the game, or is uh, it just terrible? Both, a little bit of both. I love Injustice. I love the Nether Realm fighting games, but I've never been very competitive in them in a multiplayer uh, arena. What I've liked about them are the awesome story modes that they kind of put together, and it's you know fun to play and, and play with all these cool characters. And this is an online-only multiplayer beta, four characters, um, Supergirl, Batman, Superman, and um, oh my gosh, Red Ring Power Monstrosity Guy. Oh, come on. His little pet dog. Son of a gun. Sorry. I'll think of it later. Um, are the only four characters you can play as in, in the beta. And it, it's a little column A, column B. I'm, what I'm most curious about with this game is that the, the big selling point of it, and they had it in kind of their early launch trailers, is every fight defines you. And so as you're fighting, it's kind of very much that other games have done it, but I feel like we give you know most of the credit or uh, legacy to Call of Duty for Modern Warfare, where you're unlocking new equipment and new gear, and you get, you know, you've leveled up, so now you get new gauntlets, and you can equip these new gauntlets. And your character looks different; they reflect how your character look, but they also affect your stats. So as you play and level up, atrocious, yes, atrocious, 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 and yes. it's a cat. Says it's, Rocket it's a cat? Striker. Rocket Striker in the chat just got you, ba- got your back. Well, I appreciate that. I could have sworn it was a dog, but I didn't know the character's name, so clearly I don't know. Um, the Lantern Corpse is a, a, a black hole for me. Red, yellow, yeah, and green hole, actually. Yeah. Um, pick your color. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's leveling up. It's unlocking um, new gear pieces that have stat buffs. And so you, there's an option as you're playing online that you can toggle on that says, you know, multiplayer, don't allow the customization to affect the gameplay. and But in order to have that, both parties fighting need to agree to it. So if I like, hey, I want to just fight you and have it be, I don't know, a level playing field because I, ha- I didn't happen to get this piece of armor that you have that gives you a 20 plus strength buff and you say no, then we won't fight. And so I think competitively, if you see this at Evo or something, it's going to be mandated that you have to have that on and it's just kind of cool appearance stuff. But if you're just trying to play at home, I think it could be frustrating to sit and you have to go in and go, at least the way the beta set up, you have to go in each time you go into a fight, go in, say that you want that on, see if the other person agrees. If not, then you back out, then you find another one, then you go on. Um, so I'm curious to see how that affects the, um, the multiplayer field. And then also it's not just unlocking, you know, if you're level four, you, you have this armor, it's kind of a random draw as you unlock stuff, you'll get like rare stuff or common stuff or whatever. So you could be the person that happens to unlock some of the, the most amazing gear and have these huge buffs and go in online and just kind of keep, you know, dominating people Hmm. that said, even when I had the fights, the level playing field were geared to not affect the, the the game. I still got my butt kicked, so I don't <laughs> I don't want you to think that otherwise I'd be really good at this game. There are people that are hardcore and very very good at the combo systems and understanding how the characters move. When you go into a fight, it gives you a percentage of winning, like your chance of winning, your odds of winning, and uh, one of a couple Based of times your record. I think 
I think your record and your rank uh, is kind of all it has to go off of. But there were a few times where I was matched up with someone and it was just like 0%. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, yep, that's accurate. <laughs> yep. I was like, cool. Yep. Uh, but it's fun, man. I'm, I'm still really, really excited mostly about the single player. But I think fans of Injustice 1 and that multiplayer, there's a lot to like in this. The interactive levels, uh, you know, using pieces of the level to hit the person, sending them flying into new sections of the arena. It's all there and it looks, you know, better than ever. I want to talk a little bit about Horizon Zero Dawn. I got to go to an event here in Los Angeles where we got hands-on with four hours of the game. It was the very beginning of the game, and then about, I don't know, an hour or so in, they jumped us ahead a little bit. I don't know how far they jumped us ahead or really why. They said there was some story stuff that they didn't want to reveal. Um, But it was pretty much the game as it's going to be, and we got free reign to go wherever we want and do whatever we want to do. Uh, They were you know, gave us some hints about areas that might be interesting to see, but we had complete free reign of the open world. Uh, Horizon Zero Dawn was our game of E3. It's one of the games I've been most excited about for 2017, and it completely lived up to my hopes and dreams. It's, I think it's a crime that this game is going to be coming out so close to Zelda because it really, this game has been in development for six years. It really deserves to have its own time in the sun because it, this is awesome i mean the gorilla games made kill zone this looks nothing like anything they've ever made before it really looks more like something naughty dog would make or ubisoft would make it's it is polished it's beautiful it's got this new engine which is going to be the engine that um hideo kojima is going to use for his uh insanity um but it, it i mean it's beautiful and i was one of the few people at the event who got to play it on a ps pro ps4 pro uh in hdr on an hdr television at uh 4k uh and in the way this event was set up it was just a row of televisions and so you're just kind of sitting yeah we were sitting in these couches you know next to other people from other outlets playing the game and mine was one of only two or three stations that had um the 4k enabled um and I constantly was like looking to my left and comparing the HDR version to the regular version. And oh my God, I need to throw my television in the garbage because the HDR is unbelievable. The difference is striking. And the the only saving grace is that no one will ever have the experience of someone playing it right next to them to have like a one-to-one comparison (laughs) because the game's going to look great on a PS4 anyway. And and a PS4 Pro, it'll look great in, in 4K. Uh, but in HDR and 4K, it is stunning. Um, and luckily, you just will never, you know, as, as when you're taking it home, you'll just really never know the difference. And you'll never know what you're missing. Well, let me know when you throw your TV away because I know where you live and I'll come get it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Along yeah. with your old Titan X and everything <laughs> else we have to throw away now. <laughs> yeah, all the garbage that, that technology is making us. Um but uh, I don't know if you if you have any questions about about the game. It is it's awesome. I mean, you start out. I won't spoil anything, but you you start out like as a little kid, and it has a really awesome uh, tutorial section where you're learning the game and kind of learning about the universe. And she grows up, and uh, the hunting is really fun. There's so much freedom and different ways to take down those cool mechanical animals, uh, and and. It really feels a little like like Far Cry in the sense of if you are deciding when and where to engage those things and uh, how to take them down. You have traps, you have bow and arrow, you have the spear thing for melee combat. The stealth stuff is all contextual, so you don't have like a stealth button. But when you walk into tall grass, you're automatically in stealth. 
and you know she has these these powers that are very much justified in the in the narrative of the game um where she can sort of you know turn on her whatever a game wants to call them your senses your bat senses or your you know Laura detective Croft. mode stealth yeah. mode yeah. it's that it's it really cool how well they justify it in the game it's not just like oh i'm laura croft and so i can see footprints magically it she actually has a reason for it which is neat but it also lets you your mom was laura croft so you, Mara, yeah. <laughs> you've you've in, you've you've inherited her <laughs> right um and it's uh you know you can like see uh the movement patterns of enemies and, and, and decide how you're going to take them down. You can force uh, some animals to fight other animals and, and uh, just kind of take them down that way. There's these cool traps where you, you know, shoot a electrified wire into one wall and shoot it into another wall and try to lure the animal into the trap. And there's really a lot of really cool ways to take things down. There's obviously a, a big role-playing element where you can put talent points into stuff. And um, there's merchants where you can buy all kinds of new gadgets and weapons. So I have outfits. three questions for you, I sure. think, that might not be able to be answered in four, uh, four hours of gameplay. And I'll run them all off, and then you can address them. Uh, one, I've heard the writing is not great, and I, it's just anecdotal. So I'm curious on your take on that, like the, the story as they're presenting it. Two... Is it too open worldy for me? You know me, like The Witcher. I'm on board with, but sometimes it's just like ah, you know, like or am I, I going to suffer from my Fallout Four problems of like here's your task? By the way, here's some shiny stuff, <laughs> and, and and then last, um, I I had heard on early builds. I don't know if this is from this gameplay or not. That uh, when you'd get into a fight with a with a big um dino robo robo dino or whatever, sometimes it would prioritize animation over what you were trying to do, which became frustrating because you would lose a trap snare or something like that. Hmm. Well, I'll take those in order. The The story uh, stuff that I saw, like I said, I saw the, the very lengthy um, tutorial thing that kind of establishes the world and establishes the culture of, of the tribes. And uh, I thought all the writing and voice acting was, was great. I'm, I mean, there were some side quests that were a little... Um, you know, flimsy and thin as far as, you know, a bunch of the stuff that I played were side quests of just like a guy saying, Hey, uh, we're, we're doing a hunting tournament. You want to be a better hunter? You know, beat the times. It's like, okay, well, that's clearly uh, that sounds like it answers my second question though. <laughs> well, it's, it, it much, very much feels like a, like a, an Assassin's Creed situation or an, you know, Ubisoft game. Um, at one point I took down one of those long necks that you've probably seen in the trailer, the giant loping, uh, sort of giraffe dinosaur things. That oh, the have guys a, from the No Man's Sky trailer? Is that what that is? I'm just kidding. <laughs> they have that big sort of like yeah, yeah, yeah. pancake I, face thing that the, at the end of their neck, their head is like a big, almost flying saucer looking. And you can climb to the top of that. And the climbing to the top of that is really fun because you have to, you know, it's it's basically a um, Assassin's Creed like scale to the top of the tower, except the tower is walking. So, you know, you're, you're wandering around through the thing by riding this, this monstrosity. And then you get to the top of it and jack into it and it uh, reveals, you know, it removes the fog of war for a big swath of the map. Oh, really? When you get to the top of the tower, it reveals all of the, uh, all of the side quests around you? Shocking, right? You have never done that before. (laughs) But the, but the cool thing is that it's like an actual creature, right? It's not just a tower. It's like a... Right, right, right. um, I don't know. It, It definitely uses the tropes of all of those open world games. But I think 
where it differentiates itself is in the, the, the sort of feel of the universe, which is awesome, lush, gorgeous, and mixed with that, you know, technological thing. I, I love that. Just that aesthetic is so interesting to wander around in. And, you know, very quickly you get to ride one of those metal creatures and use it as a mount. It's all, that's all really fun, I think. And it feels unique. I mean, obviously you have mounts in other games, but just sort of that aesthetic feels unique. And, and then also the, the way she, uh, hunts. I mean, I, I like the Witcher, but I found the combat here to be much more interesting and fun, um, because of it's a little more arcadey than the Witcher. Like the, you know, the Witcher has uh, a combat system that I don't find to be particularly well tuned. Um, I, you know, it's, it's fun and it's fine, but I feel like this combat system is, is a little bit more, you know, fit for a controller in your hand. It, it, it's, uh, it's a lot of fun and there's lots of options, lots of things to do at any given time and lots of ways to take down the enemies, which is really fun. Um, what was the other question, Christian? Oh, well, it was the um, open worldiness. And then I think kind of went through them. And then I, I'd heard on maybe early builds, it might have been an E3 build that uh, like sometimes it would prioritize an animation and like you'd have to, people felt like they were wasting a resource, like you'd shoot a tie or something like that. And then you couldn't get over to the spot where you're trying to get next because your character was still doing something. Well, I definitely had a few instances where I was trying to take down a really big monster and I would shoot like one end of the the rip coil or whatever it's called into a wall. And then it would like, you know, ram me and, and knock me, you know, 20 feet in the other direction. And then it would all be screwed up. And, but, you know, I think that's the challenge, right? That's how you're supposed to play the game. Right. Um, I, I didn't notice the animation thing in particular, but you know, maybe with yeah. more, more play, it would come through. Uh, Does anyone have a way to pause time come March? Because we're all screwed, uh, right? I like don't understand <laughs> how we're going to play everything cool that's coming there's out. There's no way. So many big, deep, engrossing experiences. But I came away really excited about this game. Uh, it, it just is its exactly the kinds of games I love. And uh, it's doing all that stuff really, really well. Does so. it does it feel like a role playing game to you? Because that is how they're selling it. I mean, they're they're really they say on the official site like Horizon Zero Dawn is a role playing game. Well, you know, this, those are those are very gray definitions these days. You know, it's role playing in the sense that you can differentiate your character with these skill trees, but it's it's role playing game if you think that Batman Arkham games are role playing games. You know what I mean? It's um, you're playing the role of Aloy and you are upgrading, you are upgrading, you know, in Batman, you can upgrade your hand to hand or you can upgrade your gadgets or you can upgrade your, which one do you want to do first? You know, I, I think that that's more along the lines of how this game plays and feels. It, it really does feel now that I think about it, like sort of a hybrid between the Witcher and, and an Arkham game. Um, It's got that open world thing, but it's the, the combat feels much more like a, console game than i think witcher's combat feels but well you said all the right words i feel like to get me back excited <laughs> yeah no i mean you know i don't love the assassin's creed games i don't love those those particular brand of open world but yeah this really scratched a lot of of, of my particular itches um and it just love the world and there's some fun mysteries that are established early on and it it it's it's gonna be i think it's gonna be pretty special it's i'm really hyped for it awesome um, Chris, let's go let's circle back to you. You've been playing Final Fantasy IV for, yes. for Retronauts, right? 
Yes, yes. So I'm on a podcast uh, called Retronauts talking about old video games. And uh, we were we just recorded, and it should be out, oh, sometime within the next month, uh, Final Fantasy IV episode. Um, and, uh, you know, while it's not often that we'll record an episode about an RPG, and then most of us will go back and play that RPG prior to the episode, a lot of it is sort of like remembering what it was like, um, fully three of us actually went back and played all the way through Final Fantasy IV, um, which is a fairly uh, fast game, especially when you play the PSP remake that they did, um, and I played that on the, the PlayStation Vita, um, and that was a really fun experience because, um, I mean, again, like Final Fantasy IV is already a really fast game, but uh, on the on the PSP, it has like an auto battle setting, so if you're just going to go into battle and you're just going to fight until everybody is dead, you can just press select turn on auto battle it 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 doubles the speed of battle um and you can really you can blow through this game so quickly um and it's a lot of fun as a refresher because the plot is exactly i mean the dialogue everything is the same as the super the super nintendo version it's just that they um they uh they they, the 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 graphics look better and there's arranged music um so it's a nice way to 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 go back through that for sure Sounds sounds awesome. It is. Uh, yeah, it is really. That's the fun. Vita is this. I've i just. I mean, every time there's a flash sale, any great PlayStation One game that goes on sale, any great retro role playing game, I grab it for two dollars or whatever because that's what Sony does with their you know their flash sales. And um, my PlayStation Vita is this wonderful like collection of. You know, every it's like thousands of hours of old school Japanese RPG goodness in my pocket right now. It's pretty great. There's so much to get to, you guys. Uh, I do need to take a break and and thank our sponsor, Squarespace. Uh, you've heard me talk about Squarespace for years. I've been using them for nigh on a decade now. Uh, my own personal website, Jeff Kanata, is housed on Squarespace, was designed on Squarespace. The reason is Squarespace is the easiest and the best way to create any kind of online presence. And chances are you're going to need a website sooner or later. Why put yourself through the hassle of anything other than the best, easiest way to do it? Go to squarespace.com slash DLC. Check out their tools. What you can do is you can build your website for free, completely for free, using – you not even have to enter your credit card. And, and you can find out if it's going to work right for you, if you can make it exactly how you want to make it. And then once you do – you can put in our promo code, which is Jeff sent me, and you can get 20%, or excuse me, 10% off your purchase. So check it out. You, you can make professionally designed looking websites with amateur level skills. That's pretty awesome. All you need to do is drag and drop. It's all what you see is what you get. Edit on the fly, and your website will look beautiful. It'll look professional. It'll be stable. This is the thing that I recommend to family members when they're like, I need a website. Even if you need to sell something, they have built-in storefront, just all just drag and drop. You just drag in the widgets. It's so easy to use. You get a free domain name if you sign up for a year. And like I said, we're going to give you 10% off your purchase by putting in our promo code, which is Jeff sent me, all one word, J-E-F-F-S-E-N-T-M-E. Visit squarespace.com slash DLC, sign up, check it out. Build your website before you even pay them a dime. Squarespace.com slash DLC. Promo code Jeff sent me. Um, Christian, Gravity Rush 2. Man, you're right. I gave you a hard time last week. Um, Wait, I just need to hang on. I just want to make sure that I have that recorded and it will be a drop later. Go ahead. (laughs) 
uh i i want to love that game so much and 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 maybe um i don't know a better way to put it i i I apologize for this being offensive um god i need to be better with my words it's too traditional japanesey video gamey whatever that the right way to say that it's like the, the mechanics are so fun and so cool but the story and the the plot and everything about the game and i like the first game i beat the first game on vita i don't remember the first game being this way like the first hour or two hours of this game it's just so like it's like here's some cool mechanics followed by wah 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 oh my clothes and i'm just like god oh, i don't care i don't care it's just presented in such a uh, well, Christian, we, we literally have the author of how Japanese video games gave the world an extra life on the show right now. <laughs> yeah. What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what should I call this game? Is it? I don't know. Did, did you play it, Chris? Have you played any Gravity Rush two? No, I tried. You know, I played. I got really mad at Gravity Rush one on PlayStation Vita because the long the load times were so completely insane. Um, like there'd be a there'd be a mission that took thirty seconds to try at and fail, and the load time was like <laughs> two minutes. Yeah. Um, and I was like, I have to do something else while I'm playing this game, you know, to keep myself entertained. I I, I couldn't do it, so I kind of abandoned Gravity Rush on on Vita. Uh, but I've I'm, I'm just hearing so much good stuff about about um, Gravity Rush two that yeah, I'm probably going to play it but it might not be right at this minute um but it's really it, it, fun it sounds pretty good yeah i know that's what it i'm is, hearing yeah it is it's really fun i'm just not the hugest fan of i don't even i don't my i don't know but like silly anime or um over the top whiny anime and i feel like a lot <laughs> of the plot in this is that and so and then like even mid mission you'll get some of that and I'm it's it just to me like I like fun and whimsical but that has never been my style of fun and whimsy that I've liked and so I, that keeps pulling me out of it. Guess what? I'm not going to try to convince you to play something that you're not enjoying. <laughs> there's, right. Yeah, right. There's That's life, the beauty of life today. Life is too short. I realize that we are on a video game podcast, which is all about yelling at other people to try to make <laughs> them like the video games that you like and convince them otherwise. But like seriously, I left that behind long, long ago. If you're if you're not into it, go do something else. It's it's fine. Yeah, that's kind of how I feel. That's kind of how I feel. <laughs> so you put it down, Christian. You're done just because of the yeah, story. I, yeah, I yeah. put it down and I moved to Resident Evil 7, uh, which we can talk about later. And I think I texted you this, Jeff. I mean, ideally, what I want Gravity Rush 3 to be is a world in Super Mario Odyssey, right? Like, I want those mechanics. I want those puzzles. And I'd love the Mario team to make them even more engaging and then removed from the, the craziness that is the Gravity Rush. <laughs> right. they'll, they'll do it. And then somebody will ask Miyamoto, like, oh, so was this inspired by a Gravity Rush? And he'll say, what is Gravity Rush? Is that some sort of breakfast? <laughs> I want to try the Gravity Rush breakfast cereal. That sounds delicious. Uh, yeah, we will talk about Resident Evil 7 actually in the VR talk section because I thought that would be fun to put it there because that's how I've been playing it. I do want to talk a little bit about the games that I saw at PAX South um, because I can't remember walking into a PAX and being taken by more uh, awesome games right away that I didn't know existed. <laughs> uh, and, and usually when you walk into a pack, it's like, oh yeah, that, that, oh yeah, that, oh, they have that hands on. Oh, that's cool. This one, there was like four or five games. I'm like, I've never even heard of that, but that looks incredible. 
including Hyper Universe, which I guess just got announced, uh, or at least got announced for North America. It's a Nexon game that was built for the Korean audience, but they're bringing here. I'm, you know, I'm a huge MOBA guy for Heroes of the Storm, but um, I, I think it's interesting what people are doing with MOBAs, kind of taking that MOBA formula and layering it on different kinds of genres. And that's what Hyper Universe is. It's a 2D beat-em-up, like... Uh, you know, like uh, Double Dragon or something, or Bad Dudes, you know, back from the old Data East days. Uh, and they made that into a MOBA. It's really wild. There's, you know, a cast of characters like you'd find in a MOBA. They each have skills and uh, leveling mechanics, and you're defending towers with minions that are spawning from them. But it's all 2D on this, like, a series of platforms that are connected by ladders. So... It's it's just kind of incredible how well they managed to make that work in a genre that just isn't built to be a MOBA. Uh, I was very impressed with it. Very excited to see more about Hyper Universe. Um, another- I don't. I do my I do my very best uh, on the on this note to not. I don't book a, a lot of appointments at PAX. Uh, but if I go to any PAX show, I don't really load my schedule down with like hour long, you know, commitments to go and watch, you know, trailers for massive AAA games because I just really want to hit the show floor and just start walking around and looking at every single thing because, as you said, like every single PAX, I will run into something that's like oh man, this is amazing and I would have never known about it because literally the guy is sitting on a tiny little table yeah. with like their laptop showing this showing this game. Yeah. Like every packs, always. So true. And there's like three more that I want to hit. Um, mm. There's a game called Hello Neighbor that I think is a delightful idea. It's a basically a first-person stealth action game, but you're, you're basically Dennis the Menace. You're playing as a little kid whose neighbor has something weird in his basement and you got to figure out how to get into his house, break into his house, and get into the basement without him catching you. And, That's awesome. Yeah, and when he catches you, he just throws you out of the house, and you can keep, and you can start again. So it's like it takes away that stealth thing that I hate, which is like, oh, I failed, start over. It's just like, no, he just threw you out of the house. Try again. <laughs> it's really cool. Wait a minute. 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 <clears throat> I got rid of the part of stealth games that you hate, where it said you fail, start over. This game. They throw you out of the house, try again. That's the same thing. It's not the same thing. It's a very subtle difference, and it's an important difference. It's not like game over screen, reload, let's go. It's in the context of the game, he he really runs up, grabs me, and throws me out the door. I still have everything I picked up during that run. I still can can try something else. Now he's in a new part of the house. And evidently, one of the big features of the game is that this AI of the sort of creepy old neighbor learns from the things that you've tried. So you can't try the same thing more than once because he's kind of hip to that now. Um, it's a really cool, fun take on this genre, and I'm, I'm excited to see more of that one. Uh, Dauntless is another game that I didn't really know about. I know that it had a big trailer at the, uh, the um, Video Game Awards, but it's the first time I'd ever seen the game playable. And it is basically Monster Hunter, but done by a Western developer on PC. So it's like Monster Hunter, but beautiful. Don't have to play it on 3DS and more accessible. I'm in. And it's going to be free to play. I, this game can't come fast enough. Um, I've always looked at Monster Hunter from afar and said, I want to be in that cool club of people that play that, but I've never kind of gotten into it. So I think this might be a way to do that. It's called Dauntless. 
also another another game uh just quickly mention because it's so insane uh it's called shrouded isle and uh it's by the same people that made moon hunters which is i guess is a pretty famous game uh shrouded isle it was described to me as a human sacrifice cult simulator so you are playing a the leader of a human f- sacrifice cult and you have to to cultivate people in your in your in your cult <laughs> poorly worded uh you have to find people to be part of your cult and uh promote the ones that have qualities that are best for your cult and those qualities are like ignorance gullibility uh you know and if <laughs> And if people, yeah, if people, you know, their ignorance meter goes too far down and they become wise to the outside world, they might revolt and leave the cult. So you have to make sure everybody stays ignorant. But the catch is at the end of every season, you have to sacrifice somebody because you're in a human <laughs> sacrifice cult. So you can't like promote all the best people because then you you only have really awesome people to sacrifice uh that's wonderful and that's a wonderful i mean that's just a wonderful use of game mechanics as art you know what i mean like a use of game mechanics to make statements you know it's beautiful yeah i thought so too i was like these guys are really went for it um and then finally the game that stood out to me the most the entire uh conference was a game called gora goa I have an interview with the designer, Jason Roberts, at the end of this episode. I think you guys should listen to it. It, Very difficult game to describe um, using only audio. Basically, it's like a picture book, a very beautifully hand-drawn picture book that is broken into four frames. So like four uh, comic book panels, but they're all perfect uh, squares and they're all constitute a square and you can slide any of the squares to any of the positions. So you can like pick them up like a tile and put them into, you know, the bottom right corner or the upper right corner or whatever. But sometimes when you click on a tile and move it, you'll only pick up like a layer of that image. So let's say you're looking at the picture of a window and then there's trees outside the window. Sometimes when you click on that image, it'll just grab the window and pull that away from the world behind it, which then lets the little character walk to the world behind it. He was previously impeded by that window being there, and you removed that from from the frame for him. And you're constantly like taking these layers, placing them on different frames. So maybe if I take that window and put it on a different frame, it actually affects that frame in some weird way because now I'm looking at it through a window or maybe like there's one moment where uh, there's an apple and I pulled off the frame and it was just the shape of an apple and beneath it, the thing that was giving color to the apple was a completely different object that was just hidden by this layer of apple shape. And then I'm able to sort of maneuver that and and move it around. And the people inside, the little storybook character, can walk and go to certain places that he would previously be unable to. I hope that was kind of clear because this game is mind-blowing. I've never played anything like it. It's gorgeous. It's very thinky. You know, it's a uh, pure puzzle game, pure point and click adventure puzzle game, but done in a way I have never seen before. The the it was constantly it constantly felt like a miracle. It felt miraculous because I was like, oh my god, the lateral thinking required to like 
take one scene, manipulate it, place it onto another scene and affect the world in some way. It, it constantly felt like magic was happening. I was blown away. And tying it back to previous things we discussed, it's it's by uh, Annapurna. It's by Annapurna Pictures, um, yes. the company that's also publishing the movie movie producers that are also doing What Remains of Edith Finch. So indeed, yeah, it was it was positioned right by uh, What Remains of Edith Finch at the, uh. the show. Um, so Gora Goa is one you should definitely keep an eye out for. Everybody, uh, I'm I'm super into it. Um, all right, let's move on to uh, some VR talk and uh, and get to RE7. I'm very excited to talk about that with you guys. Uh, but first, I do need to thank a new sponsor that we have this week. This is one that I've been hoping that we would get for a long time because this is a, a service that has legitimately changed my life. I'm not exaggerating whatsoever. Home delivery food that you cook yourself. HelloFresh changes the way people live, changes the way people eat. And it is, this is something if you don't, do not know about, you need to know about HelloFresh delivers, uh, food to your door and recipes. And the recipes are really interesting. They're very fresh and, and, and fun. They're kind of, uh, you know, they're, they're gourmet recipes and they deliver exactly the amount of ingredients that you need to make the recipe. So for my entire life, I've always kind of enjoyed cooking, but I never really did it because it was, it felt so impractical. I hated going to the, to the store. I hated figuring out what I wanted to cook, looking, you know, online for recipes or looking through a cookbook or something. It just felt so time consuming. And then when I would go to the, to the store, I would buy, you know, a dozen eggs and only need one or buy a whole bushel of, basil and only need a, a sprig. And then there'd be all this food that I waste because I, you know, made this delicious recipe, but I bought more than I needed. HelloFresh solves all those problems. It decides what recipes, you know, it gives you some, some recipes so you don't have to figure out what you're going to buy, what you're going to cook. And it only gives you the amount of the ingredients that you need to make that recipe. So if you need one egg, they give you one egg. If you need just a little bit of flour, they give you just a little bit of flour. It's perfect. And I'm telling you guys, this has changed my life. It's changed the life of my wife. Uh, we love staying in and cooking now. We're so excited when we get a new delivery, finding out what our recipes are going to be. Um, just last night, I'm going to pull out my recipe book here. I made mozzarella crusted chicken. It was so easy. I cooked it in less than a half an hour and it was all fresh ingredients. We knew exactly what was going in our food. So it didn't, you know, it wasn't full of a bunch of crap that you might get from, from a restaurant that you don't know what's going into it because we put the stuff into it. It tasted great and it felt so much better, man. I wish stuff like this existed when I was single because what better thing to invite a, a significant other over and cook for them Man, that's the best date in the world. Um, I I really think you guys should try this if you haven't. The food's really good. Uh, and we're going to give you $35 off your first week of deliveries. All you got to do is go to HelloFresh.com. I think, where is my, do we have a special uh, URL? I don't think so. Uh, you do use our promo code. It's DLC when you check out. That'll give you $35 off your first week of deliveries. You can have a classic box, which includes meat. You can do a veggie box, which is for vegetarians. And they're also launching a family box, which is for, um, you know, larger groups of people, like four people. Uh, usually these are for about two people. But the cool thing is if you're single, 
you can, it's only three recipes per week, right? So you cook one and then the next day you have leftovers. It's so economical. It's so, I mean, honestly, this is, has changed my life. So check it out, hellofresh.com. Use that promo code DLC at checkout. Get $35 off. It's great. Resident Evil 7 is out. I know you can play it not in VR, but I've been playing it in VR. I know, Christian, you played some in VR and some without VR. Uh, I'm very excited to talk about Resident Evil 7. Um, I know we, we talked about it at the preview event. I was very hyped on it. Christian, has it lived up to your expectations? What, do you, what are your feelings on Resident Evil 7? I think it is a hallmark watershed moment for the franchise, much in the way Resident Evil 2 was, much in the way Resident Evil Remake for the GameCube was, and much in the way that Resident Evil 4 was. And I know that I gave several examples of huge moments for this franchise, but that's how significant and and long-lasting this franchise has become in the way it's able to reinvent itself every couple of years and, and not allow itself to just become completely stagnant and, you know, look at other franchises that have existed for as long and how they kind of fall into this routine of just same thing every year and that they take these huge risks um, and then kudos to them for making the whole thing playable in vr it is it is absolutely a huge success and a huge accomplishment and it holds true to so many of the tenets of what resident evil is but also blazes its own trail and and wasn't afraid to look at parts of the franchise and just kind of say oh we're doing something completely different now we're not beholden to anything in the legacy that came before this is the game we're going to make and here's how we're going to make it and it is so bold and so brave and um i hate playing it for more than an hour because my heart can't handle it the game is bold and brave i on the other hand (laughs) (laughs) yeah Yeah, are you playing are you playing christian through the whole thing in in vr or are you switching back and forth or how are you doing it Almost entirely in VR. Late last night, I took off the headset and I, I hadn't played any outside of VR yet. And I just wanted to see how it looked and how it kind of presented itself outside of VR. And, you know, just to see, I feel like the graphics are much sharper outside of VR. The way like your arms kind of aren't floating randomly in space. Like in terms of a presentation package, it's um, sharper and clear outside of VR. But in terms of like it being an experience, that will literally kill you. VR is the way to play it, 100%. (laughs) Oh, my God. I can't even imagine. Uh, So, I mean, I've been doing a lot of VR demos, obviously, you know, over the years. I mean, as people have been bringing out VR demos. And, I mean, I played um, Wilson's Heart, uh, Mm. which was an Oculus Rift exclusive game that they had at E3 last year, and they played the demo. And it's so good. It's so interesting. It's this fascinating, you know, horror game. But, man, at the end of that demo, I was so ready to rip that headset off and throw it across the room, punch the guy developing it in the face, and 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 get on the next flight out of Los Angeles. Like, I was so done. And, I mean, the, the little bits of VR horror that I, I get scared playing, you know, anything in, in VR that's not really gentle. If somebody comes up behind me in any VR game... I, I just lose. I mean, it's it's and I, Batman Arkham VR. I really wanted to play through the whole thing because I was fascinated, and I went through the whole entire thing. But man, that last scene, I oh, was yeah. really 
really just doing my best just to hold on as I was playing it. <laughs> and don't, I mean, don't play I, Resident I, Evil Seven, I Chris. I guess not. No, don't. I guess not. I, I might try. <laughs> I don't might try. Don't try. I don't. I know you don't have try. to. You have to try it. Dude, I've. I here's here's what I've been telling everybody that's asked me about it. I have never played any video game where I have kept up such a constant monologue to myself saying this is okay you're fine it's just (laughs) just breathe just keep breathing it's only a video game it's okay just keep moving forward okay calm down just slow your heart down just just take one second just and i'm I'm like having this running monologue in my head of like there's no reason to be this anxious you're you're fine everything's fine just have to reload a save no big deal just open the door there's not going to be anything behind it just walk through it it'll be fine um it is an extraordinary. But it's not fine. <laughs> but there is something behind that it door. Is. It's gross. It's this perfect mix of like realism and the disgusting, and that's the most unnerving type of disgusting. Like there's um, Resident Evil Five or Six, which you know, whatever. I'm not going to discuss the merits of the game, but they have some disgusting stuff in them too. But the whole world is so ridiculous. You're just like, <laughs> it's a snake arm, hand, head, gross blob, explodey thing. But this is like you're in a real house. <laughs> And then you're throwing up. I I streamed my first hour, and I've played some not streaming as well, obviously. But if you watch that stream or the archive on YouTube, like I feel like the best way to play it is streaming because I'm like the guy at the movie theater during a horror movie. Like even though I can't see the chat because I have a headset on, like I'm talking to an audience, and I'm like, (laughs) this is fine. (laughs) Nothing's gonna. (laughs) It's just wow. But I I have to say. I think, you know, there's a lot of VR games that people kind of write off as being gimmicky. And I think they could have made this feel very gimmicky. And I do not think that it ever stoops to that level. It really feels to me like the the way the game was meant to be played. Because there are a number of encounters. I mean, I, I haven't finished the game yet. I'm taking it very slow. I can only play. I don't for know like, if I will. Yeah, I can't. Like it's it just... only takes like 45 minutes, and then I'm gonna say, okay, I need to go play something else or do you know take this off. I'm I'm fine, but I will. I will finish it. Um, but uh, there are the you know early on in the game, there are a lot of encounters that. You know, in a normal Resident Evil game, if there's a zombie, you just shoot it in the head and you try to get past it. You know, yes, you have limited ammo, but basically the way you take them down is use your weapons or run away. In this one, the encounters are like puzzles. They, the, the, the encounter itself needs to be figured out and there is no way to just brute force it. You have to figure out how to get past that bad person. Um, and there are a number of times where uh, you just have to hide. And I'm telling you, in VR, hiding behind a box that is just an inch away from the wall, and you can see through that inch, and you are literally leaning your head and peering through that little inch to see the horrible, terrifying creature that's walking, shambling slowly by. And you, like, literally lean your head and look through that little crevice, and you're just like, please don't see me, please don't see me. I mean, that is a transcendent moment that is a moment of pure presence in the game world that is just not the same as doing it on a 2d surface yeah i i do i i do wish and this is like i i have you tried any of it outside of vr like the graphical the fidelity is yeah is, no I, I did that whole event you know i oh, did yeah, that whole right. event outside of you and you're right it, it looks prettier uh 
outside of VR. Certainly there are, the graphics look better, but it doesn't compare to like a dude holding a knife at your throat and actually being in 3D holding it at your throat and staring into your eyes or there's a moment where a a zombie like reconstitutes its face from being, you know, damaged and it's like right in your face and it's there's nothing like that on a 2D screen. It just it doesn't compare. Even graphically looking better is not better. How would you so are are you playing there's multiple uh choices for your how you handle your camera movement. I'm doing 30 degree chunks. I tried Same playing on. on smooth and I got I don't know if it was just like nausea because of the game. I'm looking at like bugs crawling out of people's heads or if it was like I couldn't handle it. Uh, So you're playing 30 degree increments. I am playing 30 degree increments. Uh, I have not gotten nauseated at all. And in fact, when I came, when I came, oh, that's great to hear. Um, When I came away from that event, when I played it in 2d, there's a bunch of moments that are sort of cinematic that they like smack you around or throw you in the ground or something. And I was like, how the hell are they going to do this? in VR. I was so curious, but it works. Like they kind of, you know, they narrow your, your, uh, field of view. They narrow your peripheral vision. They black it out a little bit when you get, you know, jostled and they will black out the screen sometimes completely and have you just kind of wake up on the ground. All of that really works well. And it, it reduces the nausea factor completely. It's gone for me and uh, makes the game completely playable. The only downside is when it's actually a cutscene, when it's not like an in-engine cutscene, but when it's actually a cutscene, it cuts to like watching a 2D projected image. It's like the giant big screen mode. And I find that to be a little disappointing. Oh, interesting. I kind of like that because I feel like it almost made sense in the world because like then you're not your character, at least in most of the instances. I know there's some where you are, but then it kind of bleeds in back to you having control yeah so so i'm kind of okay with that my question for you i don't want to get into spoilers because i haven't finished the game so maybe it explains itself but i I think the interesting thing about this game is how it's handling it's balancing this like real world you know it's very much learned from probably back in 2010 when this you know rise of horror games you know really kind of took the internet or took the gaming world by storm again and and then but also it still feels like it's silly like there's moments in the very beginning of this game within the first hour half hour where things happen that like aren't explained in any way shape or form and your protagonist your character is just like look that happened i'm gonna keep doing this thing and i'm i'm not sure how i'm supposed to feel about that like is that just resident evil being resident evil or is there something that's gonna be like oh it was all a dream, or I knew this going in, or... Well, I'm not sure what you're no specifically bizarre. referring to, but I, I do think, you know, a trope of horror is that it's also comedic, you know, because that's how we sort of cut the that feeling in, you know, we were able to digest being afraid that long, is you have to laugh a couple of times. I think that's sort of just a trope of horror in general. So I'm going to be very vague here, but if you want to know nothing about this game, uh, skip ahead three minutes. That'll give plenty of time, but I'm going to be very vague. There's an encounter early in the game where uh, you are told how to heal yourself, right? Mm-hmm. Like you're, you're given an item and you're told how to heal yourself, and it's from something that's kind of minor. Then there's a the thing that you cannot avoid that mm-hmm. happens to you in the game that should kill you. Right. Not only does it not kill you, you don't need to heal yourself f- from it. And you just keep solving puzzles for about 20 minutes after this thing has happened to you before it's been rectified. And at no point in the narrative is it like, that shouldn't have happened. Yeah, but look at all the other 
people who have things happen to them that should kill them. I think... But, right, but this is at the very beginning after you've just arrived. Well, I think that's supposed to make you feel like, what the hell is even going on here? Okay, that's, that is how I feel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. It's an extraordinary experience. And, and like you said, it's amazing that they went to the drawing board at such a, a degree with this franchise and were able to come out of it with something so interesting and so unique and so fresh you know it's it really feels like a fresh take on this franchise and you know it, we, they had gone so far down the road of you know turret shooter for so long and to come out with this it's just it's it's quite something it's it's something to be commended i think oh yeah also i'm playing on easy <laughs> are you <laughs> i couldn't I handle it, it man. like I well it's you know, in your health and healing and stuff like that yeah, but there are, I mean, certain things that is just, <laughs> it's just how you do it or not how you do it. It's regardless of, you know, I mean, there's some things where you shoot them and they die, but there's a few where you just have to get yeah. through it. Um, another thing that I found very heartening, especially talking about this during the VR segment, is uh, according to ResidentEvil.net, nearly 10% of all players have opted to play Resident Evil 7 in VR, which would be... A pretty good number if you're just talking about PlayStation owners, but that's 10% across the entire player base, PC, Xbox One, and PS4. And you can only play it in VR on PS4. So 10% of everybody that's played Resident Evil has tried it in VR. I think that's pretty encouraging for, you know, this nascent technology. I hope other devs take notice. I would love to play a Batman game like this, you know, where you're you're able to move through the world freely the way that they've handled the the motion, the locomotion in this game and the movement and there's so many other uh, gone home, you know, in in VR like this. There are so many games I think this could be used as the jumping off point to keep building these awesome big AAA experiences. Yeah. And it's also so cool that, you know, so many of the early previews at E3 and and before uh, everybody was like, oh, this is the nausea game. This is the game that where they didn't think about it at all. And they just, and they completely fixed that. Like they really fixed it. And I think that is so good. I'm so happy that that happened because I think this really could have been, uh, you know, a, a nail, been on, a the nail on the coffin. Yeah. yeah. And now it's just a coffin. <laughs> also, yeah, Chris, I mean, Chris, don't play it. Don't play okay, it. Okay, I, I won't. Thank you. Um, <laughs> when everybody who plays your game says this is the barf game, it's like, okay, maybe we need to fix something here. Yeah, well, I'm glad they did, you know. I'm very glad they did. Now it's the barf game intentionally. You know what I mean? It's like the, oh, yeah, yeah, not like VR nausea. It's like you play this on a flat screen or in VR or whatever, and, and you're still going to barf, but it's for a very intentional uh, these people are really messed up. Like, I, I, how could, who, ugh, who are these people? Who makes this? Ugh, yeah. So gross. Uh, so real quick, I also uh, noticed that you you played I Expect You to Die, which yeah. could, could be the title of Resident Evil 7, but is not. Um, but uh, tell me your experience with that. Uh, so I Expect You to Die, I don't know if you guys have talked about it on the show previously, but um, it is a, it's a, it's a, it's basically an escape room for one person. Um, it's, it's, the idea is that you are a 007 style secret agent that was found themselves in a deadly situation. A maniacal villain has trapped you um, in one of his, you know, sort of extremely elaborate death traps, like, Dad, why don't you just shoot him kind of a thing, you know? Um, and so um, you have to use all the items, you use the Oculus touch controllers or whatever, you know, uh, motion controllers you have um, to find the items in the room, figure out how they work together, how do I solve this problem, and how do I uh, survive and get out of here and not die? Um, 
And there's four scenarios. I mean, one of them, the basic one is you're <laughs> the basic one is you are trapped inside of a car that's on a cargo airplane, and the airplane's going to blow up. So you've got to drive the car off of the uh, off of the airplane. Um, and it's super super fun. I mean, for somebody who likes escape rooms like me, to try to to be thrown into a room type situation and just have a whole bunch of random objects around you. Um, it really works for VR. You know, you get to pick things up, examine them, look at them, try to figure out how they would fit together, um, you know, really, you know, open every drawer, find all of the clues to solve the puzzles. And uh, it, that for me, um, and that can be that can be just as engaging, um, you know, a game in which, uh, you know, there are no jump scares or you're not, you know, peeking out through a one inch slat and a, you know a bunch of wood you know zombies walking by um you know it can be it can be extremely engaging and fun uh just to very slowly manipulate objects that are in front of you uh because it can it can really suck you in and make you think that you're really doing it in real life um and so that was the most fun i've had in vr recently and i would suggest that that everybody try that because it's a heck of a lot of fun. I totally agree. And I think you make a great point. It, it's something that I've said a, a number of times as well is that VR proves that the pace of a video game can com- be completely different in, in VR. Like you, yes. something that would be really boring on a 2D surface is fascinating because you're just physically manipulating it. Um, yeah. And I think that opens up a whole range of things like these escape room games. Um, and I, I'm excited to see, you know, what else that kind of can, thing can engender. Yeah, the only thing I would say is that it's I, I, I kind of grabbed different members of my family to try to have them play uh, play the game. Um, and what is very intuitive for me, you know, grabbing the Oculus Touch controllers and using them and grabbing things and picking them up and putting them down can still be very intimidating and confusing uh, to non-gamers and can kind of drag them out of it. We just got to get... You know, the the Oculus Touch controllers are like one that they're the next step on the road to uh, quite. Fr- I mean, I used to think it would be gloves. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. oh, just you put a glove on and then that's your that's your controller. But now I now I think it's um no controller at all. Right. And I think it's I think it's cameras just simply tracking your hands with you don't have to do anything. Yeah, I, I think, think I think we're close. I think we're yeah. close to that. Yeah. Um, I'm gonna, we're going to skip uh, uh, Tabletop Time this week. Uh, I, I played Doom the board game, and I'm excited to tell you guys about it. We'll do that next week, but we're already run, running long, and we have a ton of bonus content coming at the end of the show as well. Uh, I do want to get to an email because I got a cool email sent to us at dlcfeedback at gmail.com this week. This comes from Dustin Reese from Texas. He says, uh, hey, guys, I've been listening to the show for a while now, and the VR segment has been my favorite for a while now. There's a lot of stuff happening in a while now. He said, I've been wanting to try one of the headsets for a while now, in big part to Jeff's enthusiasm. A very short time ago, after doing quite a bit of research, I finally decided to pull the trigger. I ordered the HTC Vive and anxiously awaited its delivery. Of the two games it came bundled with, the gallery, Call of the Star Seed, was the first one I tried. I expected it to be cool and interesting because of the show, and I was not disappointed. I'm already looking forward to playing episode two. The first game I paid for, and what I was most thrilled for, was Raw Data. And holy cow, I didn't expect it, uh, I didn't expect it not only to work as well as it does, but also to be so challenging too. It's easily my favorite experience so far, and I can't wait for even more content to be added. I know you guys have listeners who really don't care for VR talk, and that's unfortunate because I feel that anyone who tries one of these things will understand just how fun and awesome both of the things available to play now are and how much potential there is in the future. 
Oh, both the things now and the things in the future. After trying the Vive, I'm easily as big a believer in VR as Jeff, and I don't think it'll be long before I start to annoy friends with my preaching. Like Jeff, I guess. I haven't even had any kind of motion sickness while playing, and that was one of the things I was worried about because I easily get a little woozy if I try to read while riding in a car. Love the show. Keep up the great work. Thanks, Dustin. I just thought it would be fun to read that to encourage people uh, to give it a shot because I think, as we keep saying, putting your face on is believing. All right, guys, uh, let's wrap up the show. We do have our parting gifts coming up where there'll be some some board gamey type talk there. So lovers of tabletop time, fret not. Uh, but I want to thank Chris Kohler for being here, man. It was so awesome having you be with us. Yeah, yeah, it was a lot of fun. Thanks uh, thanks again for, for having me on. I neglected to, to notice here that, uh, you know, I built that whole DLC abbreviation around your, your being with yes. Wired, but you're <laughs> leaving Wired. Uh, yes. Yeah, actually, this is my uh, second to last day. Um, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So what's next for, for you? I'm not making any announcements at this time okay. uh, in this venue, but <laughs> you, you know what? I think you'll probably see soon enough. All right. Well, we're excited to see what's next. You're one of my favorite voices in gaming. So uh, thank you so much. It's so nice of you to say. Absolutely. I think, um, yeah, well, stay tuned. Where can people stay tuned? Where can they keep up with what you're doing on the Internet? Um, I'm on Twitter. It's uh, Kobun Heat, K-O-B-U-N-H-E-A-T. I also just uh, made a little Facebook page uh, at facebook.com slash the other Chris Kohler. Um, <laughs> if you want, if you, if Facebook is your preferred method of keeping in touch with people. And uh, yeah. Cool. Sounds you know, good. Twitter, Facebook. That sounds great. Christian, how about you? What, what do you got going on this week? Well, I have a new stand-up album coming out on Monday, February 6th. It's called We're All Gonna Die. You can pre-order it right now on iTunes and Amazon MP3. It'll be out on iTunes, Amazon MP3, and the Google Music Store on February 6th. So I would love it if people would check that out. Uh, it's still me, but it, it's different than my first album in ways that... Uh, are fun and and also you know I think my first album honestly probably has more laughs per minute if you're going to count them but this album um uh, I don't know I I'm really deeper, proud of it deeper more I'm, honest truer I love it different yeah uh, I'm really really proud of it I think people are going to dig it so I'm excited for that to come out and then um Dean Del Rey and I he has a great podcast called uh, Let There Be Talk and from time to time we do these uh episodes called Bitchin Files where we kind of just chat about whatever and take questions and we had a new one of those come up so you can check that out and then his most recent one he does an interview with Bill Paxton which is incredible it's a really cool listen as well and then I have a parenting podcast called Department of Parenting and then my my little Patreon podcast is at least 20 more minutes. And you can find that on patreon.com slash Christian Spicer, where I also posted, I did a very small uh, vlog of the day I recorded my album, kind of like how I felt before I before I drove down and, and uh, how I felt walking right off stage about it. And I posted that uh, over on the Patreon feed as well. That's cool. That's a neat yeah. little insight into the process. A little bonus. Yeah. Uh, as for me, I have a couple other shows you can check out, including the Slash Filmcast, where we talk about movies and TV shows. You can find that at SlashFilmcast.com. Uh, I think we're talking about 20th Century Women this week. Uh, our episode about Split last week, uh, very controversial. <laughs> you guys should check that out, too, if you've seen the movie. Uh, and I have uh, the comedy science show We Have Concerns, uh, which you can find at wehaveconcerns.com. We just did live episodes at PAX South this weekend. Those will be coming up very soon. A lot of fun. We had guests um, on, on the show with us as well. 
including Mikey Newman. Uh, and uh, it was it was a blast. It was really fun to have the audience. And thanks to everybody who was at PAX South that came up and said hi, that uh, told me that they liked the show. It really means a lot. Always love that. Oh, and hey, you know how like I always want to talk about Heroes of the Storm on the show and like Christian doesn't want me to? Well, guess what? My friends over at Into the Nexus, the dedicated Heroes of the Storm podcast, on which I've guessed it a few times, invited me to be a permanent fixture on their show once a month. And they added that as a patron goal, Patreon goal uh, for their show. And it was uh, – they hit their goal almost immediately. So um, I'm very excited. Once a month, I'm going to be on Into the Nexus. And you should check out that show as well. I was just on last week. So uh, check it out. Um, ITN cast on Twitter. Uh, so fun talking to those guys about heroes of the storm. All right. That's going to do it for this episode. Uh, let's wrap things up with our parting gift. I should repeat that there is bonus content at the end of this episode, so uh, stay tuned for that. Really fun interview with Kelly Wallach about uh, independent games and GDC and what we can expect coming up uh, at the end of February for that. And uh, my interview uh, with the designer of Goragoa, which is a really fascinating interview. It's not that long, but he, he just seems like such a brilliant guy. But now it's time for parting gifts. And uh, Chris, do you have anything to recommend to people to get them through their week? That might not be a video game. I so um I actually uh, I, I was thinking about this. I I, I want to uh, if you go to that Facebook page that I mentioned, facebook.com slash the other Chris Kohler. I just tweeted um or I just I put up there. Um I I just did my whole recipe for uh, how to make Japanese curry at home uh, using Japanese curry bricks, but to actually make it taste better. Um and so if that's ever something you've thought of doing or maybe tried you've tried making Japanese curry at home and maybe it wasn't as good as you wanted it to be, um I have compiled all of my secret tips and tricks for doing that so you should make japanese curry this week and then you can then you can tweet the final product at me oh that sounds awesome that's rad very good and again the, that's uh, facebook.com slash the other chris kohler that's what i that's what i called it yeah awesome christian how about you you got a parting gift i do um stand up make your voice heard now more than ever stand by what you believe in and now is the time to do it. If you think that standing up and, and making calls and writing letters and talking to your family members and close friends about what you believe and why you believe it is a fool's errand, then dear sir or madam, I would call you the, you the fool. Now is the time, always is the time, to stand up and stand by your convictions and make your voice heard and make the world a better place. Do it for you. Do it for your loved ones. Do it for the ones who aren't here yet and want to be here. The power is in your hands, but it will quickly slip through your fingers if you don't use it. So please, stand up and speak your mind. Well said. Well said. And heartily agree. Uh, we have a listener-submitted uh, parting gift. Uh, you can always submit these to We Have Concerns Show at... Excuse me. <laughs> That's the wrong show. <laughs> You can submit them there too, though. You can submit them there. I wouldn't mind that. <laughs> That'd be fun. It'd be a fun episode of oh, We Have Concerns. Man. Anthony would be very concerned. <laughs> I just went to autopilot. Uh, you can submit those to dlcfeedback at gmail.com. This comes from Rob, uh, Rob Bergstrom. Uh, he says, hey, guys, I'd like to recommend a musical instrument bag. Stick with me. 
My friends and their family has, have been renting a cabin and gathering on MLK weekend the past few years. This year, it was 24 adults and children in total. My quick becoming unhealthy interest in board games is only a couple years old, but I've become the game guy and bring a bunch of games for the weekend. I actually got this suggestion from a board game podcast that was doing a special on Christmas gift ideas. And I think it was the Secret Cabal guys. And uh, this is to use a Cajon gig bag. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Cajon? Cajon? No, Cajon. Cajon gig bag as a board game bag. And their bags are made specifically – or there are bags made specifically for board games. But they are often pricey and out of stock. And you can get a Mani Percussion Standard Cajon gig bag online for 25 bucks. A cajon is just a percussive box that you sit on, so the bag is just a big cube. And he got about, he says he got about 15 games into one cone bag. So he said it's sturdy, it zips up nicely, and it has two rugged carrying straps. Works like a charm, and the kids are blown away when you open a bag full of gaming goodness. That sounds pretty awesome. Really cool recommendation. Um, my parting gift is something I saw at PAX South uh, and really want. It's on Kickstarter right now. I didn't pony up to buy it because it's real expensive, but I thought, you know, if I didn't know about this thing, I would want to know about it. So might as well let people listening know about it. If you don't know, uh, if you play any Dungeons and Dragons, I walked across or came across a, uh, a the, the world's greatest game master screen. It is made out of wood. It's absolutely gorgeous. They're doing a Kickstarter right now. It's called the Wormwood Magnetic Game Master Screen. They're all um, modular, and they have magnets on either side, so you can assemble the screen however you like. They have a little spinny plate, so it you know you want your screen to hide the stuff that the players can't see, but then you can put something really cool in this like little plexiglass. Uh, you know, front and spin it around to reveal the cool information to them. And they have, uh, um, oh my God, I can't use words today. They have um, extra goals. What are those called? Stretch goals. They have stretch goals that include a dice tower to roll the dice and like little cool little boxes to hold figures. And again, it's all modular, so it just fits in. And my God, these things are gorgeous. They're not cheap. It's like 300 bucks for the whole Jimmy Jam. But if you got that kind of scratch uh, and you want to be the ultimate GM to your games, check out the Wormwood Magnetic Game Master screen on Kickstarter. It's still got 23 days to go as of this recording. So uh, you might want to check it out. All right. That's it for this episode of DLC. Thanks to Chris Kohler and Christian Spicer for being here with me. Thanks to all the folks in the chat room for also being here and contributing to the show in real time. We really love it. Uh, we love your participation and we also love it. If you download the show, tell a friend about it, maybe hit us up for a five-star review on your platform of choice. That is all helpful. Um, also again, our thoughts and, and feelings and, and hopes and wishes are with Marcus beer, our friend, uh, please get well soon, my friend. And, uh, if you guys can spare some extra, uh, income for him, it would be very helpful in their time of, uh, mag um, medical need. It's, uh, it's you can find the link on my Facebook page, facebook.com slash Jeff Canada. All right, guys, we'll talk to you next week. Until then, think about what you put out into the world. Make it a better place. I do need to thank our final sponsor, Fireside. Fireside is a podcast hosting and analytics platform that was created by podcasters 
for podcasters. Are you a podcaster? Do you dream of being a podcaster? This is for you. It was started by Dan Benjamin, the guy who started this network, the 5 by 5 network, and he took everything he learned since 2009 from making podcasts for a living, and he turned it into a platform for podcasters everywhere, regardless of expertise level. Firesize has it all, unlimited uploads, unlimited downloads, massive amounts of real-time data and analytics about your unique downloads, a super-fast CDN for the best download speeds, multiple podcast support, free one-click podcast importing from platforms like Libsyn, FeedPress, Simplecast, and SoundCloud, custom domain mapping, a beautiful, responsive website with all your own artwork, host, and guest pages, and tons of advanced features like sponsorship integration, chapter markers, a bookmarklet for links, auto-posting of future episodes, time code linking, and so much more. And you can try Fireside for free for seven days, during which time you can import your existing podcast for free while taking advantage of every feature that Fireside has to offer. The unlimited plan starts at just $19 a month, and there is no commitment or long-term agreement to worry about. All you have to do is visit fireside.fm slash DLC today. Take the tour, use the promo code DLC for 20% off the standard plan for three months, and get started. Move your podcast over if you're already doing one, or start a new podcast. It's so easy. Fireside.fm slash DLC. Fireside. For podcasters, by podcasters. All right, I am joined now uh, by the chairperson of the IGF uh, coming up here at uh, the Game Developers Conference in just a short period of time, uh, Kelly Wallach. Kelly, welcome back to the show. You were on uh, last year about this time, and we talked about GDC and, and the Indie Mega Booth. I'm really delighted to have you back. Yeah, I'm super excited to be back. That was a, a really fun podcast. I had a lot of people actually come up to me at shows and say that they listened to it and enjoyed the episode. So oh. uh, yeah, thanks for the opportunity, and thanks for having me back again. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad to hear that. Um, so this is your second year um, with the Indie Mega Booth at, at GDC, right? Uh, actually, it's the second year uh, that I'm running the IGF. Uh, this oh, will actually me. be yeah. This will actually be our fourth year doing the GDC showcase for the Mega Booth. That's awesome. So uh, so the awards are are a big deal, and and I think is this the first year that we've doing you're doing the audience choice award where you're able to actually vote as uh, you know just somebody sitting at home on the internet. Uh, so the Audience Choice Awards, I think they've been doing it for the last few years, um, and actually that's one of the. The things we want to talk about here is that the audience uh, voting is going to close on January 31st at midnight. So if anyone is listening here and they'd like to have a say in what gets the audience award, then you should you should vote on it. Last year's winner was Undertale, yeah. which uh, was not surprising, I guess, in some ways that it would win the, the audience award. But I think it's a great way for, um, you know, the rest of the kind of games industry and people who are fans of indie games to say, like, hey, here's the stuff that we thought was really interesting um, as a kind of complement to the stuff that internally the industry is debating on and, and selecting and stuff for the rest of the awards. Yeah, there's some big heavy hitters for the IGF Audience Award this year. Um, Overcooked has got a lot of buzz. Of course, Inside, that was my, yeah. my number two of the year for my, personally on my top 10 list. Um, also, uh, I mean, the, the Flame in the Flood, Stardew Valley, of course, that's a, yeah. that's a big fan favorite. Yeah, uh, I was basically like a part-time farmer for like a couple <laughs> months last year. Yeah. Actually, um, I switched to a new desktop and I haven't moved over my save file because I have a lot of work I have to do like for my real job in the next few months. That's awesome. Yeah, it's a big long list. And um, the the uh, actual number of games that you'll be featuring this year are, is higher than last year. Is that right? 
Yeah, so the so I think like the the number or the difference in the game, so you know like the unique number of games um, selected for this year is broader than it's been in past years, which is really great. And actually, I, I mean the the difference if you look at the stuff that was nominated from last year to this year, I definitely think there's a difference in kind of the size of like the um, you know like the kind of breakout hits and things like that. And I'm but I'm really really happy with how both years have turned out so far, and I think it. It kind of is doing what I am hoping for the IGF, where it's a reflection of where the indie games scene is at at the moment and what people are thinking of and the types of games that are really making an impact. And so I was really I was really pleased to see the kind of diversity in the games that were selected this year and also how it turned out last year. But kind of like the I guess the, the play between those two things and the two styles and types of games and things that we're seeing coming out this year. That's really cool. Yeah, maybe we should uh, take a step back and and just talk in general about you know your experience last year as as chairperson and and what you learned your your first time through and what you wanted to bring to that role this year. Yeah, so last year I mean it was pretty daunting and kind of scary in some way because it feels very high profile. I mean we do the mega booth and and that's high profile in some sense, but it's also a thing that I you know, had essentially created into something that was high profile, you know, so it's a little hard to tell, like, oh, is this interesting to the rest of the industry? Or is this just a thing that I put out there and then told people was interesting, you know? (laughs) Um, (laughs) So um, being asked to take over for the um, chairman position for IGF felt really nice in a way that I wasn't expecting, because it kind of felt like this external validation, I guess, from the rest of the industry that like, hey, you know, we respect what you do. And we think that you'd be a good fit for this role. Um, so for me, I felt a lot of kind of pressure to, to do right by the industry, I guess, and to make sure that I was kind of representing what I think people want out of IGF and, um, to make changes for things that they felt weren't working. Uh, so I put a lot of effort into soliciting a lot of feedback, um, making changes kind of internally, how things work and a little stuff like behind the scenes. Uh, and so this year, I got a chance to implement a lot of the feedback and changes that I got from last year. And so I feel really happy about how it went and got a lot of really positive feedback from people on the conversations that they were having. And so I feel like it's kind of moving. I think it's moving in a really good direction where I I, I feel and hopefully that it's it's really representing a kind of broader, a broader swath of what the indie game scene is and where the industry is going Um and making sure that people feel like they they have a voice and they can talk to me about concerns that they might have or uh, ways that they want to improve and stuff like that. So I actually feel I feel very happy about how it went this year, and I feel really good about how it went last year as well too. So I'm I'm kind of keeping my fingers crossed that we're on that trajectory in the future. So I imagine the challenge to a large extent is featuring games that you know could use a broader spotlight that people probably haven't heard about and are are you know real. Um, uh, you know, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, uh, underdogs, you know, diamonds yeah, in the rough yeah. that people don't don't know about. The hidden and then gems, all, yeah, yeah, right. And then also balancing that with uh, these a little bit higher profile uh, indie games that everybody expects to sort of be part of that showcase. Yeah. Is, is that accurate? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, just to kind of give a little brief overview of how the whole system works for people that are listening and probably aren't as involved in the kind of industry side of things as we might be. Uh, The way that it starts is so people can submit their games, and then we have a group of like 300 to 400 judges who go through um, over the course of a few months, and they get assigned um, games through a system. So it's based on like what kind of hardware and stuff you have uh, to encourage people to play games that they might not normally, um, you know, see and recognize. 
Uh, and then from all that, we kind of collate all that information. And then um, we select a, a jury, which is for each of the awards that are people that are kind of leaders in the industry or really influential in um, in the category that we've selected them. And then they go through and they take all the judges' notes and they play all the games um, that they thought seemed very interesting. And a lot of them spend a lot of time digging through for what you're saying, like the hidden gems to make sure that stuff isn't getting overlooked just because it didn't have a, a popular title going in or, you know, the developer wasn't well known going into the, going into the decision. So there's a lot of people and a lot of effort and a lot of stuff that goes into looking through all these entries and making these decisions. And part of making that decision is the conversation that happens between the judges and between the jury members of like, you know, what does it mean for a game to have good game design? Or what does it mean for a game to have good audio? Or what does it mean for a game to be part of the Nuovo Award, which with some of the feedback that I got last year, the Nuovo Award was initially kind of intended to be for short form or maybe to kind of capture some of the mobile stuff or just things that weren't really fitting into other categories. And we've um, we've reworded the actual definition that now it, it is the, the art category mm-hmm. of IGF. So I think that that helped focus the conversation, but then also the conversation of like, are video games art and, you know, what kind of video games represent art and all these other sorts of things then get to play out within the context of that. So like, there's still a lot of really interesting conversations that happen between people who care very much about the industry and care about these things of like, you know, what does this mean? And what do these picks represent? And, you know, what, what kind of stuff do we want to present to the larger kind of industry to say like, Hey, this is what we think represents um, art and games right now. Or what do we think represents really good audio or really good narrative? Um, So I really, really love seeing those conversations. And I kind of want, I want people who are listening to understand how I think how much work and how much passion, how much conversation actually goes into these selections. It's not just like, oh, that game looks cool. Let's get right. an award. <laughs> you know, it's like a six month process that involves a lot of people who are very smart, working very hard. <laughs> yeah, that's no, that's great. I think I do think people have a misconception about how that works, you know, and I and I think that's encouraging and, and really, really a cool aspect of this industry in particular. And you talk about the Nuovo Award, you know, I think even highlighting that further is the the host of IGF this year. Uh, Nina Freeman is yes. won the award last year, right? Yes, I'm super, super excited for her to be doing the awards this year. We were we were talking about it for a while of like, who would we want? Who would we want? You know, and um, then her name started floating around and I was like, oh, she's great. Um, yeah, I, I've known her for a while on and off. Uh, we were in New York around the same time for a bit. And I think her work is super cool. Um, she has like, she has a kind of like profile, like a front facing profile, you know, like her life on Twitter and Facebook and stuff that I'm kind of like, I wish I had the nerve to do. <laughs> <laughs> so I kind of admire her in that, in that aspect. I think it's, uh, I think she's going to do super great. So I'm really looking forward to that. That's cool. And is there, there's a new category this year for IGF, the alt control? Yeah. So this is another thing kind of in the same vein as moving the Nuovo award into the art category. There's been a showcase at GDC for the last few years. It's called alt control GDC. Um, and that is a showcase that highlights games that use alternative controllers. So things like it might not even be a digital game. It might be, um, uh, like line wobbler is a good example of something I'm thinking of where it's basically just a couple buttons and then a really tall, like led light display line, um, that you play as a game. So, and the whole community that's built around this stuff is really, it's really amazing. It's super creative. 
it's really, really hard for them to get their game out in front of people because it requires specific hardware or because it's sure. all custom built and stuff like that. And so it's something that I've I've been following for the last couple of years, especially. And I just think it's so it's so cool, it's so creative, and it contributes a lot to the industry. And I think it's something that a lot of people don't have exposure to just by the nature of what it is. Right. Um, so when we're thinking of ways to handle entries that come in like that, um, it was suggested then early, I was like, you know, why don't we do some sort of special award or some sort of recognition with the rest of IGF to say like, hey, here's here's these kinds of games that you might not be able to see anywhere else. Um, and this is the kind of work that they're doing. And we want to recognize that in some way. So um, I'm really, really, really happy that that got included. Um, it's still judged and run as its own separate thing. So you still have to submit your games to the all control GDC. Um, it's still curated in the same way. And then we're just presenting at the IGF awards um, an award to the, the essentially the winner mm-hmm. for that showcase. So it's really, that- really exciting to me. I, th- this idea of pushing the limits of what you even consider to be a video game, you know, based on yeah. the components that are involved. And are there any other examples that you can, you can give us of, of stuff that's qualified in, in this category? Uh, well, I mean, for some, I've seen alternative controller stuff where like you use a banana as a controller. <laughs> right, like there's right. things where you can like plug in these electrodes into just stuff um, which will make it act as a controller. Um, I mean, there's things that also people just make their own custom hardware stuff or maybe an arcade cabinet. Uh, I see a lot of this, like we do work with um, BitSummit, which is in uh, Kyoto in Japan each year. And that's a, a pretty kind of like common thing for a lot of Japanese indie developers to do as well, where they take old um, like consoles and they make their own custom controllers for it or they make their own little consoles or something like that. And so that's kind of celebrating the side of it, like the the creative hardware building component of games. Um, like I oh. even, there's one guy who used to work at Q games that uh, like made his own PlayStation essentially <laughs> and like wow. wrote his own code for it and all this sort of stuff. And I think that that, that kind of stuff is like super incredible. Yeah. Yeah. And then the other end of the spectrum is uh, the game I played a while back at, at, I think it was at PAX with the, where you uh, sniff a dog's butt and they yes. had, and they had yeah, the that was actually animals. in the mega booth. Yeah. That, that's the other thing is like, there's games that are like that where you don't see this outside of events, but yeah. The, so the game is butt sniffing pugs. I always <laughs> exactly. have to say it slow because it's like a tongue twister. Um, and you can play Among it on a PC. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can play it on PC, but the way that they they built like this little, it's like a wooden box, and then it has a giant fake tennis ball in it, and then a stuffed animal pug. But <laughs> you can like yeah. push, and then you roll a ball and things like that, and so. Yeah, that's like awesome and creative and very cool. And you would never see that. Like you can't buy that, right? Like you right. can't just buy it. I mean, I'm sure you could. I'm sure you could contact him and buy it and put it <laughs> in your house if you wanted to. Um, yeah. And so there's like all this kind of stuff that even goes with that where the game maybe can normally be controlled on a PC, but they just make something custom and really interesting to show it off at, at public events um, or to bring it to like parties or to bars and things like that. Yeah. That's so cool. Um, yeah. Are there any other uh, trends that you're seeing this year that, uh, you know, separate this year or kind of um, focus it in, in a way in your, at least in your head or in the head of the judges? Um, I kind of feel like maybe that ties in a bit to the kind of difference in the games that were nominated last year versus this year, where last year there was a lot of conversation of like, oh, a lot of these games were commercially successful. So like, you know, of course they're going to be in these awards, which I actually think is super important. Like, I don't think that someone should kind of get disqualified from something because the game ended up being financially successful because that's kind of like the goal 
you know, for the whole purpose of doing sure. that. Like we should celebrate when there are cases of things like that that happen. Um, but then also on the flip side of it, like I think people want to feel like they're discovering some new content and they're seeing stuff that they hadn't um, heard of before. And I feel like the the lineup this year is kind of a reflection of that and a reflection in the sense of I think that there were a lot of really big breakout hits last year. And I think that um, this year coming into it, not like people are more serious about things, but it's just the industry has shifted a little bit where like that, that all sort of happened and all these big things came out that had been worked on for a while. And now it's kind of going back on like, um, I don't want to say a downswing because it makes it sound like it's sad or something, you know, but it's like new, new stuff and new content and interesting things that are coming out that haven't quite made it out to the consumer audience yet. And so I think that this year, um, to me, it seemed like a lot of stuff was like really thoughtful and kind of interesting and a little below the radar, um, in the kind of games industry overall, which I, which I really like. And I, I saw that a lot in like the, the mega boost submissions and stuff as well, too. So I kind of see it as like the, the upside to the downside or the downside to the upside kind of thing. Right. Like we're our, uh, our karma or, you know, however you want to say it, the end of the yang kind of thing. <laughs> well, how many, how many submissions do you, do you guys get for the indie mega booth? Uh, for any mega booth, we get about three to three fifty um, mm-hmm. games, maybe every like six months or so. So over the course of the year, we get maybe like five hundred discrete games. I'd say submitted um, for IGF, it's about seven hundred ish, like between six fifty and seven hundred. Yeah, you whittle that down to thirty. Uh, yeah. Well, for so yeah, for IGF, it's whittled down to about thirty. For the mega booth. Uh, we also include tabletop games and we have the mini booth area. So we end up at about like 70 or 80 games per show, which is actually pretty high. Um, but we also do smaller showcases like the GDC showcase. Um, we only have a small number of teams. So in the last few years, we've had 15. Um, this year, we're actually reorganizing just the, the physical layout of it. And we're just going to have 12, t- um, 12 games in the showcase. And that's actually coming out of that same that same pool of those 300 and something. So in some ways the GDC showcase is actually harder to get into um, than the pack stuff would be, but we kind of run ours a little similar to how IGF is in the sense where we have a larger pool of judges that are looking at the games initially. Mm -hmm. um, And then we all sit down and make the decisions about what games are going to make it in um, to the actual showcase. So it's, that's also another kind of couple months of a lot of work um, and a lot of curation stuff. I wrote up a very, very, very long blog, uh, uh, blog post on the mega booth website about how we make the selection so if anyone's everyone's interested in reading you know a fifty thousand word essay or whatever <laughs> i ended up writing about it <laughs> i'm sure I, it sounds fascinating um you mentioned uh, tabletop games we you know we cover that big time on this show i, I have a segment uh, called uh, tabletop time and and it's oh, a yeah. passion of mine so uh I, i'd love if you can talk about that a little bit I don't know how much how involved you are in that side of things, but I love seeing the the shut up and sit down guys, um, you know, doing their thing at GDC every year and and yeah. highlighting uh, tabletop experiences. But can you talk a little bit about the relationship between tabletop and digital at the at the show? Yeah, so the tabletop area we started it a few years ago um, when actually we started getting a couple board games submitted to the mega booth because they just wanted to have um, you know booth space and they wanted to be in somewhere that was getting more traffic outside of just the the tabletop gaming area um, that's at PAX. And when I first was sitting down and really thinking about it, I was like, you know, I don't really I'm used to, I'm used to looking at digital games and I'm used to seeing stuff in progress and understanding how that works. Like I worked as a project manager for a while and you know, I have a lot of experience looking at a game that's early and saying, okay, like, oh, this is going to be good or, oh, they're definitely going to finish it or, you know, oh, there's potential here. Um, where board games are a little harder for me to, to look at that sort of stuff. And also, um, 
as just kind of a general thing, a lot of indie developers don't have a lot of money, but indie tabletop developers have, I would say, even less money (laughs) and less access to resources. Um, So when we were getting further in, we're like, this is going to be really, like, very expensive um, in kind of relative terms for tabletop developers to participate. So we actually ended up partnering with Cards Against Humanity, um, and they've been helping us out since Those the guys very first have money. one. <laughs> yeah, well they're they're also I mean they don't always just like they they help out with money. So every every tabletop game actually shows for free at PAX thanks to their support. That's awesome. Um which is amazing for us. Um and for the teams and everything. It's a super great opportunity. Um but then on top of it they also help us to go through the games and go through the submissions and stuff so they can lend their expertise to kind of like okay, this is what you know, we we see the potential in this and we see um, that, you know, this is a good team or this game has really good potential and stuff like that. So that's actually been a really, a really great partnership. And I think it's been really good for the tabletop developers who work with us because it can help them build their community a little bit. A lot of them can sell their game at the show. And since they haven't been having to pay for the space, they can actually, you know, come out on top um, from the event, which is something that I think is hard to do you know, when you're, you're kind of hand making a lot of your stuff or you have limited production right. of the, the game that you're working on. So I think overall, overall, I love it. And also, I think that the audience then gets a chance to see some of the tabletop games when they might not go to the tabletop area at PAX, or they might not even really think of it, or they might not kind of consider it game design in the same way that you would think of like a digital right. video game. So yeah, and I think that there's there's such fun cross-pollinization happening where yes. digital game designers are learning from tabletop design and vice versa. It's just it's so exciting to me as a, a fan of both to see that. Yeah, we actually have um, a handful of the people that show in the tabletop actually formally made digital games or showed with the mega booth, to, you know, with yeah. a digital game and then moved into making board games or a lot of people that do paper prototypes for their digital game and then turn it into something later. Yeah, and I'm I'm a big I'm I'm a big proponent of like I I visually learn and I write things down and I make stuff on paper and things like that as a way to kind of think through stuff. So I, I like that a lot of people are integrating that and seeing it not just as something where you have to like sit in front of a computer or do something a certain way. Like you can be a little more creative and playful with the way that you're designing your game and the way that you're putting it together. It's awesome. Well, the uh, awards ceremony for IGF takes place on Wednesday, March 1st at 6.30 Pacific time. And you can watch that on Twitch, right? It'll be live streamed. Yes. Yeah. And uh, any other things you want to leave us with? Uh, it sounds like a, a pretty exciting year. I'm looking forward to it myself. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm super excited for it. I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on around that time. PAX is right after it. Um, so I think it's going to be a pretty like crazy couple of weeks for all the people involved. Um, I think probably the only other thing is that the, um, the game developers choice awards also happens at the same time as the IGF awards, which I'm think is also live streamed. Yeah. I think it's uh, right afterwards, Twitch. right? Tim Schafer yeah. Will be so they kind of, yeah. yeah. So they bleed into each other. Yeah. And that was what I was going to mention is Tim Schafer is back hosting. Um, he had post, he had hosted, I think two years ago or something as well. So I think the, the lineup for the hosts is looking pretty exciting. Absolutely. Yeah. He's the best. So funny. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I think nothing else other than just very excited. Please visit, visit IGF.com, visit IndieMegaBooth.com, tweet at us, say hi, come by the showcases, you know, all that sort of stuff, um, especially if you're going to be at GDC. And if you're not, then you can watch it on Twitch and you can check out the stuff online and all that, all that fun stuff. Well, thank you, Kelly. I appreciate it. Kelly Wallach. Thank you for being here. I appreciate it. Yeah. I'm excited for uh, GDC and maybe we'll, we'll talk to you again this time next year. Yeah, yeah, that would be awesome. Thanks so much. All right, take care. All right. You are Jason Roberts. 
the designer of Gora Goa. Gora Goa, right. Yes. Which is, what, what is that word? I'm not familiar with it. Uh, well, it's the name of the creature in the game. So okay. It's, it's a made-up word. Okay. Um, it's supposed to uh, sound sort of like something coming, like a rumble from under the earth or thunder or something like that. It's like something that means... Uh, That's the sort of yeah. colorful dragon creature we see right at the beginning. Yeah. And that is, um, yeah, it's a possibly you, divine creature. Yeah, yeah. I don't. You don't have to reveal anything. I just want to kind of be clear as to what I'm talking Something about. Something may <laughs> never be revealed. Yes, that's what I mean. Okay. Uh, this game blew my mind uh, over and over and over. Can you tell me a little bit about the inspiration behind it? it, it it's not like nothing yeah. I've played before. Uh, well, there are like as I've reconstructed it in my own mind because it goes it goes way working it goes so far back um, on the one I had one project which was an interactive comic strip uh, where I wanted to and as soon as I had the idea of like a comic strip with panels you can interact with I started to want to like break the break down the borders between panels and like move things between two scenes right. or have characters that could you know or the same character in two scenes interacting with uh, him or herself um and the other idea I had was sort of like a more like a card game where each card, you know, has a picture on it. Right. Um, like tiles. Can, yeah. Right? Yeah. More like dominoes, but they, where you can alter the properties of a tile or a card by entering it and like exploring it. So if like you know, it's a domino with two dots, you could like enter into uh, that world and like travel around, like find a gun and shoot three holes in a wall, and now you've got you zoom back out, and now you've got three dots on. Right. That tile. But That's a great way of explaining it because I'm sh- I'm struggling with a way to kind of yeah. explain this game to people. Well, that's a that's a whole that's a, another game where right. that had like a top level game that you were kind of cheating at by interacting with the world, and I decided that that was too complex and that the top level game wasn't necessary. I would just make it work kind of like dominoes at the most elementary level where you're connecting things and stacking. Them. Right. But the rules for connecting and stacking these are purely visual. And they have to do with, like, visual alignment. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's amazing because when you sit down and you see the four tiles and the four scenes, you go, yeah. okay, well, I kind of expect there to be moments where I line them up and then I walk from one to the other. Yeah. And it's all about positional stuff. But that is almost barely used. And also just the first basic level of what you do in this game. Yeah. And I think that's so cool that... That's the jumping-off point, but it, it goes so much farther than that. And yeah. I kept blowing my own mind by the lateral thinking that's involved. It's constant lateral thinking, right? Yeah, I, yeah. I, I like like that, and I uh, I like that the you know games are always in frames, you know, like but you're supposed to ignore it, right? The, right. Like the edge of the TV is there, and you can see it, but you don't think about it. It like wraps around you and disappears. Uh, but I like uh, breaking that. And, uh, I mean, a lot of this is about uh, sort of reliving these chi- these kind of childhood fantasies where, of, like, storybook pictures that you can enter, interact with, and come to life. And I think another fantasy thing that you imagine as a child is you've got, you know, two pictures on a wall, and you want to put them side by side, and they connect. Sure, yeah. Uh, yeah. Or maybe, maybe nowadays, two windows, like, two different game windows running on the same computer screen, and they connect together yeah 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 it's awesome Um, can you tell me a little bit about the how you go about designing a puzzle in the game because I imagine it's (laughs) it is it's it's a crazy process it's really hard and it's taken me a long time to 
well, to get a little bit better at it, but I mean, each puzzle piece is also a scene in a story. So, I early on I would design things from a like a game design standpoint, design interesting puzzles with kind of arbitrary imagery that would existed to make the puzzle work, but then the resulting scenes didn't mean anything from a story standpoint. And the story as it went along was like cluttered with more and more arbitrary imagery that became off-putting to players. Like at first it might seem mysterious, but you can sense whether there's underlying underlying meaning in something or not. Right. Um, so eventually I had to say, well, there's each puzzle has to have an additional constraint on it where the pieces have to make anything that's part of a puzzle also has to make sense in whatever scene it's in. I feel like it's organic. Right. You shouldn't look at an image in the game and say, oh, that's that thing there is clearly part of a puzzle. Which right. in some ways breaks one a rule of game design in that normally when you do when you're doing level design you want to call out the things that are part of a puzzle. But and I do that so that's like I balance those things because I want it, everything to kind of feel miraculous. So two things connect that look like they, they, until you get close to connecting them, like they just seem like they're just part of the world and they're, you know. Yeah. No, you do achieve that. I, I, it does feel miraculous over and over and over again. Yeah. And you, you, when you peel something off of another thing that looks completely, like it completely belongs, that yeah. is, a, every time that moment it feels magical. Yeah, yeah, that's, and yeah, each one of those moments is really expensive to create because it's, <laughs> it's all has to be handcrafted and yeah. uh, hand-built, and that's why, that's part of the reason why it's taken so long is that, you know, I think any, any the development of any game goes down these, like, dead ends and you try something and then you back out, but each time I've gone down a, a, a branch and tried something, it's been a super, it's like, even the puzzles I rejected took forever, <laughs> and early on I spent much too... Uh, I finished art uh, much too early, and right. So that's why I think I've you know it's hard to estimate, but I've probably thrown out forty percent of the content, and a lot of oh, that yeah. being finished drawings. Wow. Uh, nowadays, I do a temp art pass where um, try not to waste your own well, time. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah. like it, it still it looks okay because I have to kind of solve the visual design problems, but it's not finished pencil art. Anyway, so. It seemed to me, and maybe I'm wrong, but it seemed to me that there were a few false pathways. Like, I could zoom in on something, but I didn't ever need to. It, is that the case? Uh, there may be, and I, that's... I mean, sometimes... Uh, and this is another issue. Like, sometimes there's something you can zoom into that is meant as a, uh, a clue for another puzzle. Right. But there is an issue with the game where there's no distinction there's no clear distinction between a clue for a puzzle and a piece of a puzzle right but I kind of like that like yeah I mean I think a lot of game designers probably uh, feel weird about putting a player in a place of not knowing for too long yeah and especially in, this, in a context like this I always feel like people come up and go, oh no here let me yeah. tell you how to do it when the joy is to sit in that place and yeah. not know you know well, when you're watching somebody play it's easy to imagine that they're if they're stuck they're frustrated right um and sometimes maybe they are, but a lot of times when I talk to some people afterwards, they are like they enjoyed that. Like exactly. I, I, I come in, I'm apologetic, I'm like, eh, I will fix them and add more clues, and they're like, well, no, actually, I liked right. figuring it out. That's uh, the fun is yeah. not knowing for a long time and then knowing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. not yeah, not everybody loves that equally, but I, <laughs> I, I do. Yeah, me too. Um, uh, the, the game absolutely gorgeous. It, it's coming out this spring, you said. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm I can't wait for it, and I'm 
I just think it's a it's a magical experience just already. So oh, thank cool. you. Thanks oh, for talking to me. Yeah, no, absolutely. Appreciate Thanks it. very much.